because a brand new episode of That Horror Show Podcast is about to begin. Hello, boys. Welcome to That Horror Show Podcast with that dynamic duo of horror, Timothy Kaz and Christopher Koenig. I'm my number one fan. We all go a little mad sometimes. We're going to need a bigger boat. When you think of horror, think of us. We are a podcast like no other. So sit back, relax, and enjoy That Horror Show Podcast, if you dare. Merry Christmas, Christopher. Oh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yes. And another uh, fun uh, day of, of, of winter snow and cold, cold ice. weather, ice. Uh, yes, because you know, <laughs> Thursday is going to be a bitch because it's going to be like four degrees and we're going to have like eight feet of snow. <laughs> <laughs> well, eight feet of snow, I don't know, but that definitely it's going to be four degrees. Right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so we're here talking, you know, warming up our naughty parts from being out, being outside, freezing them off. Uh, oh, goodness gracious. You know, do you ever put your kids to work? You should just tell them uh, to shovel the snow. I, I, actually, I did, but they're five and two. <laughs> and it's not it, stopping you, dude. Uh, actually, it's a, fu- a funny story. Is my uh, son was, go- we were taking my son to preschool. I'm like, I'm like, he goes, Daddy, what are you going to do while I'm at school? I'm like, well, I'm going to go I'm gonna snow blow the driveway and snow blow the driveway and shovel. He's like, no, Daddy, I want to help. I want to help. I want to help. I'm like, all right, fine. I guess I could, you know, after I dropped him off at school, I came back and I prepped for the show. And when I picked him up, I'm like, okay, you want to you shovel the driveway? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have, you know, the adult shovels and I have two kids' shovels for my son and daughter. And they're like, yay, let's do this. So we're out there shoveling. They shovel for about three minutes. And they're done. <laughs> they're like, Daddy, I'm cold. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to play in the snowbank over here. I'm just going to play over here with Gabby. I'm like, fine. <laughs> when, when he said he was cold, you should have said, yeah, the weather does that to you sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, they're in their snow pants and their snow boots and they're they're having fun. I'm like, but like, I wasted all this time <laughs> getting the snowblower ready and getting everything taken care of, and it was just a oh, big wait old pile. Wait till they pile. get older, then they'll be like, "I don't want to do any work." Yeah. <laughs> well, once they hit about ten or twelve, guess who's uh, snowblowing a driveway and shoveling? Yeah. That's what I had to do. Yeah. <laughs> get out there! <laughs> you guys got young, strong backs. <laughs> just yell at them, say, yeah. "Get out!" <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you want a sandwich for lunch? <laughs> no, but. Uh, yeah, that was it's it should be really interesting the next few uh weeks. <laughs> Recorded Tuesday, December 13th, 2016. Merry Christmas, guys. This is Tim and this is Chris. Welcome to our season 2 finale, episode 20, that Black Christmas Holiday Special. You may ask you may be asking yourself, self, why would these guys be doing a Christmas episode in December? Well, because it's Christmas, you big dummy, and Christmas is in December. <laughs> Plus, today is the day that the original Black Christmas is being re-released on the Blu-ray from Scream Factory. Yes, yes. I um. I, <sighs> well, you know what? I was actually hoping we would be able to do this episode like after we get the movie yes. in, but time, yeah, it's all about time constraints. Well, it's time constraints. I think the the release date is technically, I think. It's today. It's today. Okay, it's today. Yeah, it's today. It, should be, it should be sitting on my doorstep when I get home from right, the studio. Right, right. But uh, so in the meantime, we've had to rely on the old, older DVD full-frame presentation that yeah. uh, leaves a lot to be desired. But because the original Black Christmas is a good movie and holds up very well even now, mm-hmm. uh, 
that old DVD will have to suffice for us while we do this show. Yeah. So I mean, I mean it's, it's a disappointing. I can tell. I, I could say that I own the twenty fifth anniversary edition of Black Christmas I on do. DVD too. Yeah, yeah. So we own the same copy. Right. Uh, and and, I, and I'm I, holding it right here. And I believe <laughs> at one point, because we did talk about Black Christmas back during the the, the old Severpod days. Yes, the uh, old Severpod. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming that you got yours as much as I've got mine from a disc replay. Yes, point. I did. Yes. Actually, I've got both versions from disc replay, but we'll go up on that later. More on that later. Um, so, but yes, we are doing a very special Christmassy episode. You know, to a certain extent, this is also uh, in this um, the idea of, of this is kind of sort of um, we're still thinking about it, but we remember how we were talking about doing like a, a versus episode. Where yes, we do yes. The original versus the remake. Yes. So we do have some ideas of that plan down the down the road. Yes. So I guess you can say in in a sense this is kind of a um, experiment. Right. And, it, and if you hearken back to our February episode where we did the Bloody Valentine, my Bloody right, Valentine, right, right. That's that was also the same an experiment thing. too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, we originally said we were just going to do Black Christmas, and then I think we said, "Well, let's do the remake too." And yeah, I'm like, like, oh, like well, right. yeah, why not go? Why not come full circle? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's just go ahead. You know, blow the whole load. Just get this going. So, <laughs> yes, keeping in the Christmas spirit. Uh, right, right. Blowing your load early. Right. So, uh, we we have a nice special episode where we will be tackling the original and uh, maybe airing our grievances over the original. But um, at the same time, we will be talking a little bit about well. We were thinking about doing a what have we watched segment. Yes, and we're doing kind of a hybrid of that right yes, today. Yes, yeah. So to kind of sort of make up for it because as you've noticed in the past episodes, we really haven't done one. And I keep – we kept writing. We'll, we'll have another one coming soon. We yeah. promise. We swear. And but, I'm like, oh, man, we're doing too many movies. We can't yeah. possibly squeeze in another right, two. Right, right. Unless, unless you want us to do a whopping four-hour episode. Which... No, I'm, I'm perfectly content with editing a two-hour episode yes, <laughs> or yeah. a little so, over two-hour episode. So uh, we will have – we're going to be talking about uh, Christmas-themed movies mm-hmm. that we have picked out um, for ourselves basically. Uh, three titles, um, mm-hmm. and hopefully you you know I mean whenever people talk about Christmas movies, it's usually the standards you know. But mm-hmm. hopefully we have something different here for you. Oh yeah. So, um, do you think we should go ahead and start with that? Or do you, um, well, actually, well, no. We should be talking about what what, what has been going yeah, on with us. <laughs> yeah. So, what have you been up to, my merry little elf? Well, uh, not much except uh, shoveling that snow <laughs> and uh, putting up with the uh, the ghastly cold weather that is December. <laughs> I will say, as much as I like Christmas, I Sometimes just cannot stand the cold weather yes. for this. I'm I'm just so thankful I got my holiday lights up and yeah. all operational about two hours before the first snowfall came through. Right, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. And I had to put the kids' sandbox away. I'm like, and the snow's coming down. I'm like, crap! I waited too long. <laughs> I'm trying to get everything into the garage <laughs> yeah. and then the rafters. Uh, After a while, you're just like, I forget. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I've been. Uh, I finished Christmas shopping for the kids and the wife, so I'm very pleased with that. And I'm amped up for Rogue One that's coming out on Friday. Yeah, I know everybody seeing else Seeing that too. Friday night. Or actually, it's coming out Thursday, but I'm seeing it Friday night. So oh, okay. Still awesome. All right. So. But uh, not much going on with me. I just uh, – as, as, as the old joke used to be on Severpod, I am a, I am a Jamaican working yes. five jobs. You're, so you're, it's... You're, you're, you're a fifth Jamaican. <laughs> fifth Jamaican, yeah, <laughs> working five jobs. Uh, actually, just two, but uh, we love to exaggerate it a little bit. But not much going on. I do have my Christmas shopping done and, and – um, Mostly just keeping a watch on the weather and, and getting that driveway plowed so I don't have to do it at the last minute when the snow freezes or anything like that. But uh, 
no, other than that, that's practically yeah. my life. So, <laughs> oh yeah, and if and if you can, can, if you maybe hear my phone going off every once in a while, buzzing in the background, that's me getting weather yeah, update know, alerts. <laughs> thank you for mentioning it. For a moment there, I thought we had like some audio distortions. No, no, no. That's just saying, hey, look, jackass, there's a storm coming. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to get inside and turn up the heat. No, but uh, you know, if this podcast doesn't make your skin crawl, then maybe it's on too tight. Yes. Oh, you're <laughs> quoting the tagline uh, from the yes, movie. Yes, of course. Why Jeez. wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? Well, I guess we should uh, get started with our uh, three Christmas theme movie picks. Right. But, um, but actually, before we do that, I'd, oh wait, yes, I yes. did pose a question on our Facebook page a couple of days ago, um, saying we we're going to be heading into the studio and we're asking everybody what their favorite Christmas or Christmas themed movies were. And we had two responses, so I'd like to just read those really quick. Um, and it's one was from uh, Stacy Blair. Uh, he uh, mentions Gremlins, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Jack Frost, and Black Christmas, just to name a few. Well, thank you, Stacy. Um, and then we have Murph St- Stevenson. Um, he says he also mentions uh, Gremlins. Uh, he also enjoys uh, Stint, which I haven't heard of. Yeah, I, I haven't heard that either. So uh, I gotta check that out. But Rare Exports, which you covered last year. Uh, the children. Um, so I'm not really sure on that one either. I'm gonna have to look that yeah, one up. Yeah, I'm not sure on too. Um, and then for shits and giggles, he mentions Jack Frost and Santa Sleigh, <laughs> and pretty much in any order. <laughs> so isn't Santa Sleigh? Is that the Bill Gorbel movie that we watched I think a few we years did. ago? <laughs> Now, once again, I wish we had some of the old audio from the Seven Pod days. We yeah. could, we could play that back as like a S- Santa Sleigh has be- uh, become one of those movies that it's just so awfully bad it's good and entertaining maybe not good good is a, entertaining if that's the same movie with Bill Goldberg I, just, I, th- I think it's I I'm think not it sure is. but if it is I remember the scene where it opens up with an uncredited um uh, James Conn yes and, uh, and uh, Chris Kattan and there was also Fran Drescher, Fran Drescher yeah and, and he and, just comes on the chimney and just pretty much chokeholds and kills everybody I know and I was kind of sitting there watching it going what what are these people doing I mean like okay Chris Kattan not really a uh, formidable star in any sense of the word but <laughs> or, or neither is Fran Drescher in yes. a sense but James Conn I mean what, well, but, but then I at the time I think I said I understand that they've got to pay the bills so, yeah and, so, I mean, and hey who knows maybe the director or producer was a friend <laughs> yeah yeah well they had to be a very good friend hey come in for a day this. shoot you know yeah, you, you yeah. all have to just sit here for a now couple they minutes. mentioned Jack Frost now, now there's two Jack Frost there's the yeah, horror yeah. movie and then there's the that one Michael, with Keaton, Michael Keaton which is a horror movie in itself <laughs> 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 no, but I think we yeah, we covered Jack Frost a couple of years too, along with Santa Slay, because I was right, right. feeling in a very uh, I was I have actually produced that one episode and yeah, <laughs> you were feeling very generous. With I was the, feeling generous, but handing out the shit piles. Yeah, yeah, with Dave and me, and we were kind of just yes. sitting there going, like, "Geez, come on!" And then also, I believe. Um, uh, we did talk about Gremlins also way back during the, yeah. the oldie Sever podcast. Yeah. Gremlins is a great yeah, uh, yeah. Christmas theme. That one's movie. kind of like a no brainer in a sense. Or, or like if someone asked me, do you think Gremlins was counted as a Christmas? Like, well, of course, you silly goose. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so silly. <laughs> or, um, or you know, I, I talked to somebody at work about this, and it always somehow got mentioned during Christmas. Was that you know does does Die Hard count as a Christmas? Like, of it, course it does. It does, <laughs> and and, you, and there's a, and there's a case to be made for Lethal Weapon too because right, right. it's all around Christmas. Yeah, time. it may not be like all you know happy go lucky Christmassy yeah. type things, but right. it does take place during the season. Yeah, so. <laughs> it does. It does. So with that, maybe let's head into our very special what we watch segment. You know, like we mentioned, uh, Chris and I will be giving you a brief synopsis of three films that we believe uh, help define the Christmas and holiday season. Um. So are we going to – is there a special uh, thing that we're rolling? 
Huh. Seeing that drunk Santa wet himself really perked up my Christmas. Okay, Chris, why don't you kick us off? <laughs> all right, all right, okay. So, I have three titles here. Um, first one I'm going to talk about is Bad Santa from twenty from two thousand three. You know, well, I have still yet to see that. I want oh, to see okay. that. Okay, well, well, what better way to start off the holiday season than by watching a Christmas themed movie that isn't exactly all nice and goodwill <laughs> towards all men? Um, Bad Santa is, by all accounts, due to its both its title and actual on-screen content, the complete polar opposite. It's foul-mouthed, vicious, and mean-spirited. Yet it's also very funny, and believe it or not, for as hysterically foul and rude the whole show is, Bad Santa does have some moments of sentimentality that makes it a near-perfect Christmas movie. Mm. Billy Bob Thornton portrays middle-aged man Willie T. Stokes, a self-loathing misanthropic alcoholic who makes his living playing Santa Claus at local malls with his midget associate Marcus, played by Tony Cox. Of course, you wonder just how Willie and Marcus are able to make their whole living by their you know seasonal gig. Well, that's because Willie and Marcus are professional heist men. They scope out a particular <laughs> mall that suits to their liking, set up an, an ingenious plan to rob the place after it closes on Christmas night, and then wait until next December to rob yet another mall via their seasonal gig. After completing yet another successful robbery, Willie says he's done for good and intends to head for Florida to set up his own bar. But Marcus knows full well that his partner is going to piss his money away and come crawling back to do another <laughs> Christmas robbery. Well, after many months pass, Willie is in Florida and, well, he's flat broke and spends most of his time either drunk or hungover, although sometimes you really can't tell either way. <laughs> and it's December and Marcus calls his inebriated partner to come to Phoenix, Arizona for yet another heist. Setting up their act at a local shopping mall, the manager, Bob Chapiska, played by John Ritter in what would be his final role, suspects there is something not quite right about Willie's behavior and reports to the mall security chief, Jin Slagle, played by Bernie Mac, who has some ideas of his own. But despite Willie's constant drinking both on and off the job and sexual encounters, again, both on and off the job, <laughs> he is soon finding himself becoming attached to Thurman, played by Brett Kelly, a fat, snot-nosed kid whose father is mostly absent, and the kid thinks Willie is the real Santa. Yes, Bad Santa is crass and crude, but it's the type of filthy show that works because the movie has an interesting scenario that holds everything together, as opposed to just being a movie relying on its catchy title and an audience's personal vision of seeing Santa Claus spewing profanity from his mouth like no tomorrow. And, of course, it's the presence of Billy Bob Thornton that makes the whole show worth watching, as he perfectly embodies a character that ha that hates everything, including the holidays, yet his weird outbursts and drunken antics bring a smile, a chuckle, and, oh yes, a little bit of sympathy his way. Is Bad Santa an inappropriate Christmas movie? Yes, it is. <laughs> that is, unless the recent sequel Bad Santa 2 manages to top it. <laughs> but until I've had a chance to survey the sequel, Bad Santa stands out on top and manages to make for an interesting Christmas-themed movie. But just be sure to remind yourself that it isn't Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> so that's Bad Santa. Wow. And now my second movie is a film called Scandal from 1950. Uh, Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa is best known for making such grandiose international classics like Rashomon from 1951, Seven Samurai from 1954, and The Hidden Fortress from 1959, as well as serve as an influence to such mainstream, mainstream directors like Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and George Lucas. But before hitting his stride, Kurosawa's cinematic beginnings started in the late 
late 1940s and early 1950s with a string of modest dramas. Scandal is considered to be one of Kurosawa's lesser entries, but I think it should be up for a reevaluation. And, oh yes, it can serve as a nice little Christmas-themed movie. Scandal revolves around famous artist Ichiro Oi, played by Toshiro Mifune, who, while working on a new painting out in the countryside, obliges to give a motorcycle ride to a young woman who is looking for a local inn to stay at. The woman turns out to be popular singer Miyako Saijo, played by Shirley Yamaguchi, who is trying to avoid being photographed by nosy paparazzi. But when a photographer takes a quick picture of the two standing next to each other at the balcony of the inn, the picture is immediately published in a scandal sheet entitled Amour, with the publisher concocting a phony story of the artist and singer having a secret affair. To plead their innocence, Ichiro Miyako intend to sue the magazine with the assistance of a down-and-out lawyer uh, played by Takashi Shimura. While Ichiro has his doubts about his lawyer, he finds out that the lawyer's sweet daughter is suffering from tuberculosis and decides to hire the lawyer to take on the case. But inasmuch as the lawyer wants to help his clients, it turns out that the, that the lawyer has a gambling addiction and the magazine publisher bribes the poor guy to bungle the case. Yes, folks, Scandal is a melodrama and it's quite the sad affair for the main characters involved, particularly uh, Takeshi Shimura's sad sack of a lawyer character who gets the most sympathy from the audience due to his moral conflicts that ensue. So why does Scandal fit this particular holiday exactly? Well, the first half of the film takes place during Christmas. There you go. With the, yeah, final, half, with the final half leaning towards the new year. But above all, Scandal has a satisfying ending that does capture the spirit of the season. And really, that's all we can ask for in a melodrama like this one. And now for my last title, which I feel is the best one of them all, is Larceny Incorporated from 1942. Edward G. Robinson is best known amongst classic film buffs for playing hot-headed gangsters in movies like Little Caesar from 1931 and Key Largo from 1947, just to name a few. And yet while Robinson played great bad guys in serious movies, he also displayed a flair for performing in screwball comedies. fine example is this, Larceny Incorporated, which is basically a story about ex-cons trying to go straight and end up turning once again to a life of crime. But it's all done for laughs. Robinson plays Jay Chalmers' Pressure Maxwell, a former racketeer locked, locked up in Sing Sing prison along with his dim-witted cohort, Jug Martin, played by Broderick Crawford. While there, fellow inmate Leo Dexter, played by a then-young and then-unknown Anthony Quinn, mentions about a particular bank in New York that's just worth robbing once they get out. But Maxwell intends to head for the straight and narrow when he gets released, and he plans to build his own dog racetrack in Florida. After Maxwell and Jug are released from prison, they head to New York and are greeted by Denny Costello, played by Jane Wyman, who was raised by Maxwell after her father was gunned down at a telephone booth. Maxwell and Jug meet their old pal Weepy Davis, played by Edward Brophy, who sadly informs Maxwell that their police that the police destroyed their illegal slot machine business and therefore they have no money to set up the dog track. Maxwell heads to the bank to in an attempt to get a loan. But when the bank refuses to help, Maxwell and his cohorts decide to rob the bank instead. But they need, a, they need to set up a plan that will work in their favor. So Maxwell built, buys a luggage store that's located just right next to the bank, and they intend to tunnel their way underneath to get to the vault. What follows is a series of comedy of errors, all done in the, that classic comedy style of fast-paced dialogue and one-liner zingers, with a story that manages to be unpredictable and fresh despite being made some 74 years ago. Wow. Of course, why does Larceny Incorporated fit as a Christmas-themed movie exactly? Well, loyal listeners, it's because the beginning and midsection of the film takes place in the middle of December, with the final big finale coming together during none other than Christmas Eve, 
which at one point switches the comic tone to near seriousness. But the whole bulk of the show is a classic screwball comedy, and Edward G. Robinson's presence helps sell the humor well. And, oh yes, it has a happy ending that can def- that definitely will bring a smile to your face. Wow. <laughs> very good, Chris. Very good. Yeah, those are my three. I, I, so. I, I really – Bad Santa has been on my list, my, my queue for way too long. And I remember you talking about the second film. I'm sorry. What was the name of it? It was called Sca- and Scandal, Scandal from 1950. Scandal. Yeah, I want to check that out because I know you mentioned that once or twice before in our, in our previous we, recordings. Yeah, I think we mentioned it, again, last? way back during our old Severpod yeah. days where we were talking about Christmas-themed yeah. movies and everything. So, so. yeah, I'm, I'm going to definitely have to check out Scandal. And Larsley Incorporated mm-hmm. is also a pretty good check. I, I would say that's like – because like, like I said, I, movies like Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life are definitely on my top list of right. Christmas-themed movies. But – I, in, in terms of talking about other Christmas themed movies that I guess you could say not many people are familiar with or they are kind of familiar with but doesn't quite make it on their list, I think Larson Incorporated is one of them that makes it on my list, on the top list, along with Miracle on 34th Street Larson. and It's a Wonderful Life. So I'll have to definitely put that in my uh, – put write that down for later. Larceny and Scandal and obviously Bad Santa. Yeah. So what have you got there, Tim? <sighs> what do I have? OK. For my number one pick, not, not in any particular order um, – the Long Kiss Goodnight from 1996, written uh. written by action, comedy, and Christmas movie-themed guru, the one and only Shane Black, <laughs> and directed by Rennie Harlan and starring Gina Davis and Samuel, this ain't no ham on rye, pal, Jackson. <laughs> <sighs> All right. The Long Kiss Goodnight is about a woman named Samantha Kane, played by Gina Davis, a schoolteacher and a member of the PTA. Now, for eight years, she suffered from a certain kind of amnesia, but... Other than that, everything was perfectly fine. She lived in a small, quiet town in Hansdale, PA, was in a loving relationship with her longtime boyfriend. She also had an eight-year-old daughter named Caitlin. But she felt something was missing and was on this quest to find out and remember who she truly was. She had hired many high-priced investigators that turned up nothing over the past years. Samantha was down to her last PI, a low-rent, cheap detective, and let's just say it, kind of shady character named Mitch, played by Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) It turns out he finally hits pay dirt after an old apartment landlord of Samantha's, Kane's, passes away, and the landlord had kept most of her stuff after her apparent disappearance many years ago. It turns out one of the landlord's family members found an old credit card and tried to use it, and that's how how this little cookie unfolded. Meanwhile, Samantha was playing Mrs. Claus in a Christmas parade, and a local news channel filmed her waving to the crowds. A one-eyed man in a high-security prison happens to see this news clip and flips the fuck out, screaming and swearing that he killed that bitch, and she's still al- how is she still alive? Yada, yada, yada. So very Christmassy. Um, it certainly is. Anywho, this sent him over the top, and he breaks out of the prison, tracks her down, and slips into a local Christmas caroling group. Um... And tries to assassinate with this ginormous hand cannon of a gun that literally rips almost the entire house apart. Thankfully, he misses hitting the kid and the boyfriend with his cannon. Sam dispatches the one-eyed would-be assassin in a pretty brutal and fantastic uh, kind of way as she begins to remember who she really is. Mitch then shows up, and they both hit the road to try to uncover the truth. What follows is an awesome, unique action film <laughs> with a lot of funny, sharp one, a lot of, of uh, with lots of funny and one and sharp one-liners, over-the-top action, all within a Christmas setting, such as kids' pageants, parades, Christmas music, eggnogs, parties, Christmas trees, etc. If you're looking for an action film with a Christmas theme, with a Christmas theme other than your diehards or your lethal weapon, this movie does a trick. Obviously, I highly recommend this film. Put a bow on it. Oh, that hurt like shit. Oh. I know. That's why I distracted you first. Same principle as deflowering virgins. What? 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 
read it in this Harold Robbins book. Guy bites her on the ear, distracts from the pain. Never try that? No, no, I sock him in the jaw and your pop goes the weasel. Who the fuck are you? Name's Charlie. The spy. Nice to meet you. So, <laughs> that's great. Baby. That's my number one. I gotta check that out too because I have. I, it's been a yeah, long time since I've seen it too. It's such a fun movie. It yeah. really is. I mean, it's it's it's, it's Christmas themed. There's a ton of action. Great one liners. Samuel L. Jackson owns this. Yeah, movie. Yeah, I was gonna say there's nothing better than watching Samuel L. Jackson play a down and out pi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are. I mean, there's a ham on rye. Um, uh, uh, quote that I used. There is. There's another scene where they're where they're in an alley and. He comes up behind her and he's trying to save her from the like the bad guy, and he pulls out like another, like a, it's like dirty Harry three fifty seven Magnum, and he, and he goes and he, and that's where he uses the hammer on right pal, and then she turns around and says, oh, "You can't be this stupid. Did you take lessons? Says, I took some lessons, bitch, or something like that. Like, absolutely, just fun stuff. All I took some yeah." Oh, but number two, uh, this is definitely uh, always uh, on my top playlist um, every Christmas season. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation from oh, 1989. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, uh, written by John Hughes, directed by Jeremiah S. Chicklet, um, and starring Chevy Chase, Beverly, De- Beverly D'Angelo, Julie- Juliet Lewis, and, and Johnny Galecki. Yes, that Johnny Galecki from Big Bang Theory. Uh, I think this was one of his first acting roles. Um, and you know what? It's interesting that this uh, this is classic Chevy Chase. This was yeah. before. This is before when his career kind of, for some reason, just started sliding downhill. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so it's classic Chevy Chase. Oh you know, yeah, it, it's, it's it's a classic. It's it's definitely a comedic uh, comedy classic. Um, the Griswolds are back, and there's no time for a vacation, be it to Wally World, Europe, or even Vegas. <laughs> That's right. Clark Griswold and his family will be hosting Christmas at their house this year for their entire family. Clark is always optimistic in the face of comedic adversary, adversity and discourse. He tries to make the best out of every situation, even though he's also a stumbling goof sometimes. His heart <laughs> is always in the right place, and it's with his family. The film opens up with Clark and the gang driving to pick out their annual Christmas tree. Only Clark gets into, let's just say, a driving dispute with another vehicle. He then ends up – he then gets the family station, wagon, family station wagon wedged under a log truck at a high rate of speed and then ends up, then ends up launching the family sedan, Dukes of Hazard style, over a snowbank into the woods where the family hikes and almost freezes to death to obtain this enormous pine tree about four sizes too big for any standard single-family dwelling. <sighs> We then encounter Margot and Todd, the totally 80s yuppie couple who thinks they're better than everyone else. It's fun to see Clark. <laughs> right. Yes. It's fun to see Clark and the couple have their passive-aggressive and not-so-passive-aggressive arguments and disputes. We then meet the cast of crazy, insane characters that make up the Clark's family. It's extremely over-the-top fam- It's an extremely over-the-top family that will make you laugh and maybe you just might recognize some of the zany uh, characters- characterizations portrayed in your own extended family. <laughs> Pretty much uh, in this film, anything that could go wrong does go wrong with hilarious results. All stemming from Clark just wanting to have a perfect old-fashioned Norman Rockwell-esque type of holiday memory, just like he remembers when he was younger. This film is a perfect Christmas family film, silly, fun, and heartwarming. So that's number two. Yes. Not 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 every family could be complete without a a Randy Quaid type yeah. uncle. Shitter's full. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Rottweiler snot because, yeah, because yeah. he's got some sort of like a, um, you know, a, a nose problem. Well, I'm trying to remember too, too when he when, – when Randy Quaid's character showed up, what was the re- – I forget the reason why he showed up. Was it because they got evicted or something or were they yeah. just on the road or – Yeah, yeah. The, the, well, it's, it's kind of – 
um, they don't tell it right away. It just, yeah. He just kind of shows up. They're like, yeah, who yeah. invited you? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. He, I remember, too, he stands next to him after when, when Clark gets the lights put together. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, yeah, that's very good, Clark. And he looks like, what are you doing? And it's so funny. <laughs> like, how did he show up? <laughs> right, right. And I, I, there's a, there's the, the, the scene where they're in Walmart and <laughs> – <laughs> and, they're, and they're like – Clark's got to buy presents for everybody, even right. – um, was it Rand, uh, Randy Quaid's character's family? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you buy yourself something pretty too – buy yourself something real nice from us too, Clark. <laughs> and as, he's, as, they're, as they're stacking dog food bag after dog food bag onto the top of this, top of this cart. Oh, my God. Just, I think there was a scene there too where he – where Clark's trying to tell his kids – um, you know, like, oh yeah, the news report said Santa's the forecast for Santa coming through, and then didn't didn't Quaid's character like completely ruin that moment by yeah, doing yeah, some he, kind of weird, he, like he, like saying uh, there's no probability that Santa would make it for that weather. Part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to. Remember. It's been a long yeah, time since I've seen yeah, it. So yeah, it's, yeah. There, there was a there there was I can't remember the exact quote, but that's close enough. <laughs> that's close. Yeah. Oh. But uh, yeah, I gotta check that out now too because because yeah. it's been a long time since I've seen. It. I think I saw it like when it was on television. But when yeah. when television used to play these movies constantly. Yes. Nowadays they just don't. So yeah, unless you're the Hallmark Channel and just play nothing but schmaltzy, you know, yeah, yeah, Christmas yeah, movies. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, thank God for home videos. <laughs> yes. So and finally, number three, a top film of mine, just just without even being Christmas. Um, it's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Ah, who knew? <laughs> I know. I know. I'm very, you know, very. Uh, was it? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, very traditional, traditional, I guess. Yeah. Yes, traditional. There you traditional go. Traditional nostalgic, too. Yes. So, It's a Wonderful Life from 1946, written and directed by Frank Carpa, starring James Stewart and Donna Reed. It's a Wonderful Life is a wonderful and heartwarming film that when it was first released was actually panned by critics as cheesy and a box office failure at the time. Over the years and decades, it truly has become a classic in every sense of the word. And in a sense, it didn't quite start out being what you'd call a Christmas – even though it takes place in Christmas. Yeah. But it didn't start out being a Christmas-themed movie. Yeah. And that, like over the years, it took it a long time for it to sort of become that sort of staple. So. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. But I think when it went to, to public, almost like public domain, almost. Yeah, and yeah. Then like every station was playing it around the clock for like a month. Right. So that's how I saw it. Yeah, when I first yeah saw exactly. It. That's how most of us saw it. But <laughs> at that time, when uh, when it was because I think it, I think rights deferred something back to the studios in 1974. I think that's when the rights ran out, and then yeah. they, then every station decided they could pick it up for peanuts. It was an independent movie technically, and yeah. it was. Um, they just because it failed, they just kind of let the movie linger, and then over yeah. the years it would get seen again and reevaluated in like second and third run of theaters, and then it would show up on television. Yeah. But by that point, I think the rights owners just didn't care too much about it. Right. And then over the years, and then eventually it, it, the rights. I think Paramount kind of rescued the film. I think from that was absurdity. back in the early nineties. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it, the, the film was uh, – like I said, when I was a kid growing up, it was run pretty much 24-7 for yeah. like – on every station for a, for almost like a month. Um, uh, and that's and that was how I saw it. But again, when I was that young, I didn't fully appreciate the movie because when you're young, it's, it's, a, ve- it's a very heavy subject matter. Right, right. Um, but anyway, uh, the film starts off with various people uh, in a voiceover praying for a man named George Bailey played by James Stewart. From his mother to the local townspeople to his wife and children. You see, George has become extremely depressed and is thinking about taking his own life, thinking the world would be better off place without him. We then hear angels in heaven talking to each other in, a vo- in another voiceover. We are introduced to Clarence, a simple and kind soul, uh, who is an angel who desperately wants to earn his wings. If Clarence can save George Bailey's life, then good old Clarence can receive his wings. 
The audience gets the backstory of George Bailey from the age of 12, where he and a bunch of kids, including George's kid brother, Harry, are sledding, and Harry falls into the ice. George heroically saves his brother's life, but in the process ends up getting a cold and losing the hearing in his left ear. Shortly after that, while working part-time at Mr. Gower's, played, Mr. Gower's drugstore played by H.B. Warner, uh, George prevents a mistake in a prescription from fatally poisoning someone. The two little girls in George's life at that point are Mary Hatch, played by Donna Reed, and Violet uh, Bick, played by Gloria Gannam, who seem to be competing for his notice. George, George has got really big dreams of leaving the sleepy little town of Bedford Falls and seeing the world, going to college, and building things. While George has enormous respect for his father and what he was doing to help people, he certainly didn't want to follow in his father's footsteps at the building at the building and loan. Uh, but one thing after another wrecked his plans. George went to work for the building and loan for a few years after graduating from high school, with the expectancy that Harry would take over when he graduated, and George could go on to a, uh, go on a European excursion and then go to college. But his father had a deadly stroke, and George had to take over the B and L for a few months, giving up the Europe, European tour. Then Potter attempted to liquidate the B&L. The only thing that could stop it is, was for George to take it over himself. So he gives up college and gives his college money to Harry. The plan at that point was that after Harry graduates, he will take over the B&L and George will go to college. <clears throat> but Harry returns from college having married Ruth Dakin. And, Ruth fa- and Ruth fa- Ruth, ah, sorry, Ruth's father had offered him a job in upstate New York. So George had no choice but to stay with the B&L. Mm. George married Mary Hatchett after a difficult introduction. He mistakenly thought Mary was in love with his lifelong rival, Sam Wainwright, played by Frank Albertson, <laughs> which was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, Remember that. Yes. George and Mary are about to go on their honeymoon with the $2,000 they had saved up. But a banking crisis occurred. Potter had taken over uh, the bank that guarantees the B&L loans, and he had called in those loans. <clears throat> Customers were in a fight or in a fright and were attempting to go over to Potter's bank. The only way George could have saved the situation is to provide the customer's needs out of his own honeymoon money. Their friends Ernie, played by Frank Falian, the cabbie, and Bert, played by Ward Bond, the policemen, arranged, arranged for them to have a cut-rate honeymoon at their house. What comes after that is additional battling with, additional battling with Potter and trying to keep the town from bowing down to Potter. He becomes extremely depressed after falling out with family and friends, and he thinks the world would be better off without him. So Clarence ends up saving George's life and then shows George Bailey what the people in his life and town would be like without him. In my opinion, this is not only a fantastic Christmas and holiday film, but a great film in general about redemption, love, second chances, and never giving up. Yeah, that's true. I agree. and It's interesting because I, I, what I love about the movie is the idea of how um, the George Bailey character, he has all these dreams and everything. Right. And he never quite achieves those dreams in one sense. Right. But because his life takes a different turn – uh, he does achieve some things in his life. It may right. not be the dreams that he originally wanted to do, like being an explorer or going off to you know to Europe, countries, and countries, and all that stuff, or you know taking that job and in, in the you know the, the bigger yeah, job that he yeah, the, could have gotten. And even even I think one, one point uh, he was almost seduced by the dark side, and not to use a Star Wars reference from Potter saying, "Come work with me, right? Right? I'll pay you twenty five thousand dollars a year, which back then was a, quite a bit of money. Oh, of course. And trips to New York twice a year, right? You know? Right. But 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 he decides not to do that because he 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 finally realizes he he kind of understands what his father's principles were in a right. sense. But at the same time, it, it when the situation happens later in the movie where. 
there's an issue of the um, the money that was accidentally left yeah, behind. Yeah, by, by his uncle. I think it's Billy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there's that desperation that uh, that James Stewart's character goes through. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a very. I mean, I do it. It's hard. This is a hard. It's a hard movie not to get emotional towards because there right. is something about the things that you see that happens to him. Like I gotta be, I gotta be honest. I wish there was that alter, There was an alternate ending like the one, the one they did in Saturday Night Live where they all go to Potter's place and kill him. <laughs> you know, because the the, the 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 Potter character played by um, uh, Lionel, Bra- Lionel, Lionel Barrymore. Yeah. yeah, you know, good performance. But but he's his, an evil, sadistic oh, son of a bitch. And he is, and, and it's amazing how. You know, you'd you'd think this small town wouldn't go up against him in some other way because right. of the way how Potter is in this movie, and it's interesting how Potter wants to be controlling, but at the same time, it's like for all of his controlling, you know, if you think about it, his character could have almost scared these people from living in this town right. and right. go somewhere else. Right. And, 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 <laughs> and, and truthfully, you know, if you want to look at it another way, is that he did, he, he inadvertently. Help build people's dreams, other people's dreams, right. with building houses for 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 the for the people that were involved with the buildings and loans. Um, you know, and there was a great uh, line I can't remember it exactly, but where he's like, you know, people work hard; they deserve to have, um, you know, two bedrooms and a bath to put over their heads. Yeah, you know, um, and it's just like so. In a sense, he built. He did build something. He built a, he built a community. Right. And another thing I like or about helped it, build a community. I'm I sorry. like about it too is that it, it is like I guess you can say a serious drama but then there's that that if you want to go down that road that that fantasy element where the idea of of it takes an angel to get uh, George Bailey to understand that you know he does have an importance in life. It may not be the life that George Bailey necessarily had planned for himself at one point, right. but you know his life does have a meaning and a purpose, right. and that's what's great about the movie too. And it also has that ending where you know it does sort of come together. It's not quite a realistic, obviously, because this is not, yeah, not a, a realistic movie. It's a movie. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's not a realistic ending because you know there's that scene where the bank, uh, no, the. Um, um, the inspectors, the inspectors yeah. come by, and, yeah. you know, and honestly, even even the, despite the fact that the, the community helps George Bailey out and get the money, yeah, gets the money and all that, these guys would have still arrested his ass. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's it's, a little bit of the Hollywood I, magic. Oh, you know? oh no, and I yeah. and I, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah. That's why I, I say to myself, regardless of that, that's what makes yeah. the movie great. There's, there's, <laughs> for, for me, there's a fine line because I, there's. I'll take some schmaltz. Oh, of course. Uh, I'll take some of it too. You know, I mean, but <laughs> leading up to that, I'm already sucked in. and I'm already invested. I'm oh, like, you know, absolutely. Uh, and that's why I think the movie still holds up is because it does have that hopeful uh, right. conclusion. Right. Like you do hope that if something like this does happen, I mean, if it did, let's right. say, well, you do hope to yourself that that people would come together in that well, sense. I mean, even, and I mean, this is, I mean, we can I could spend talking forever yeah, on this, yeah, yeah. but there's, there's just one more thing I want to mention. It's like, and it got me early um, uh, when they're, uh, you know, and predict, or, you know, they're just describing George Bailey's character as a, even as a young kid, you know, saving his brother's life uh, and then going to work at the drugstore and then realizing that, um, uh, the, the, old, the old man had gotten some bad news about his son that just passed away. Yeah. In, influenza, I believe. Um, and he's, he is drunk and he is just in the back. You know, he's trying to fill uh, prescriptions, but his, you know, he's definitely not in any type he's, of Yeah, of he's frame not of mind. with it, basically. Right. But then George discovers the, you know, the, 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 accident, the, the mistake about the poison being in the capsules. And he's like, 
Um, and after he come back to the store, he's like, how come you didn't deliver that package? What is wrong with you? Yeah, that's and, actually kind of a scary scene because the yeah. guy actually hits him in his yeah, ear and yeah. it, it hits the young George right. in his ear. And if you look and, very carefully in the shot, they put a little blood on the right, side of his ear. Right. And truthfully, that scene got me choked up because he's trying to tell Mr. Potter and then Mr. Potter's crying and George is crying. And yeah. I'm like, and I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's, it's, it's a really like – you can. I mean, it's easy to criticize yeah. it as schmaltz, but I mean, like, it is a very sad but, but, and very and very powerful the, 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 scene. These you know? are all human emotions, and, right. and um, where you know he smacks him and he's crying because he goes, "I know you didn't mean to do it. I know you didn't mean to do it. I know it's you're, you're, you know because of what happened with your son, blah blah blah." And he goes, "But and then he's like, oh, I'm sorry, George. I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean. You know, so I mean that right there. Even that we're talking about now, I get a little choked up about it, but that really." help sell me on the rest of it. Right. And then I obviously agree. Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart or James Stewart uh, dancing and, and the yeah, gymnasium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and this sort of kind yeah. of, I guess you can say sort of ta- you know, back and forth between them. You know, yeah. and of course you're wondering, well, who are they? Who's going to, you know, win George Bailey? Is it the Donna Reed character yeah. or the Gloria Graham character? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, oh, I'm sorry. One more thing. I feel like Columbo. Just one more thing. Uh, okay. There's a scene where George is trying to get out of town. You know, and the cab driver is like, come on, take And George talked to the cab driver. How about you take me home uh, like it's in style and stuff like that? And they see Gloria's character or um, uh, the. the um, Sorry, hold on. Sorry, one sec. Uh, Vic, uh, Violet. Yeah, you yeah. You see Violet's character where she's walking in this like really nice dress mm-hmm. and down the street and all the guys are looking at her. One guy almost gets run over by a car. <laughs> <laughs> and then you uh, see the cabbie and the uh, the policeman talking and they're like – and the policeman looks at his watch. After seeing – after walk by, he's like, I better go see what the missus – which the missus is up to right now. <laughs> and then the cab driver's like – He's a family man. <laughs> I just, oh, yeah. He's a real roll- family yeah. man. <laughs> but that had me rolling. All right. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Fun little moments yeah. like that too. Yeah. You know, that, that, that add to that – I guess you can say that that fun little um, – Le- levity. Levity, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, so, so yeah, but I, I, I am with you on this too. I mean, like, It's Wonderful Life is – it still holds up. It's still one yeah. of those movies. It, there's something about it that even though it was made from 46 – it, there's something about it that's, that kind of feels a little timeless about it. Oh, yeah. It's one of those movies that you wish someone would kind of not remake because no. I really hope no one no, would remake no. this. They made a sequel, I think, and that bombed yeah, horribly. Yeah, yeah. Just, but I mean like you kind of wish someone would kind of make a film like this. Today. Yes. Th- th- this, their version. Not, not not a remake but something their on own, that level. Their own uh, – their own yeah. uh, It's a Wonderful Life type well, film. Well, yeah. Like in a sense, you know, since we're going to be talking about Black Christmas, Bob Clark, you right. know, uh, Christmas Story, yeah. you know, something yeah. like that, you know, yes. that that feels a little timeless, yes. that that feels like, yeah, it's kind of an escape from the standards that we, you know, I guess you can say the style differences of today. Because now if someone made a Christmas movie today, it would be just like, well, it, it, would, it, it, would, it, it would be a movie that where it would just... It would. I honestly think if someone made a comedy Christmas movie today, kind of like Bad Santa, but the difference is, is that Bad Santa is funny because the gross-out humor right. fits the story. Today, if someone would do that, they would just forget the story and just focus on, you know, let's take Christmas and turn it into this whole, um, you know, where like nothing is respected basically, right. you know, right. that kind of thing. I mean I, I, it's hard for me to explain, but basically I, I wish someone would make a movie like – but not remake it, but sort of has that that it's a wonderful life feel kind to of it. feel to yeah, it. Yes, yeah. thank you. The feeling behind it. Yeah. 
So, oh, but we could we could go on forever just on this. So, but oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's time to really get into the festivities of our episode with Bob Clark's Christmas, Bob Clark's Black Christmas from 1974. Yeah, so don't we have a trailer for that? Yeah, let's roll that trailer, Chris. So then when it rings, it'll ring at the station house, too. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. Your phone's ringing. Hello? Hey, Mommy. Hey, baby. Baby, all right, Mommy. Yes, Terminal 
Chestnuts roasting over open fires. Carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. Ah, great trailer. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess I'm taking it away. We are talking about Black Christmas 1974, directed by Bob Clark and written by Roy Moore. Uh, cult horror fans make an interesting argument that uh, John Carpenter's 1979 slasher classic Halloween wouldn't have come about if it were not for Bob Clark's film Black Christmas. While there is no specific confirmation that Carpenter had seen Clark's film before dredging up the character of Michael Myers, nonetheless, the two films have the very similar traits. Both are slasher thrillers. Both were low-budget affairs. And, oh, yes, both films revolve around a particular holiday season. And yet, while Halloween went on to become a box office hit thanks to a successful re-release in 1980, uh, it has to be noted that its original 1979 first-run release was a minor disappointment. At least that's what John Carpenter has said. Uh, And because of continuous home video releases along with sequels that have some quality shifts here and there – and a crappy remake or two spearheaded by <laughs> Rob Zombie. Black Christmas kind of sort of came and went after its 1974 theatrical release and managed to slowly gain uh, fan attention thanks to home video over the various years. And while the first Halloween is definitely a horror classic, Black Christmas is a great little horror film in its own right. And if one looks at Bob Clark's filmography, he certainly falls under the category of diverse. However, <laughs> yes, that's very yes. true. <laughs> However, it's also an even bigger shock to see that before his untimely death on April, se- on April 4th, 2007, he spent the late 1990s and early 2000s directing kitty crap like Baby Geniuses. Super, hey. Saber <laughs> Babies, Baby Geniuses 2. And who can forget the karate dog? I mean, Those are amazing. <laughs> what are you talking about? Good job there, Tim. <laughs> well, thank God for his early work like Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things from 1972, Death Dream from 1974, Breaking Point from 1976, Murder by Decree from 1979, Porky's from 1981, <laughs> and oh yes, A Christmas Story from 1983. No, I'm serious. I, I got to tell you, looking at his filmography, though all these films that I've listed are certainly his better movies. Yes, yes. So, and yes, Black Christmas is certainly a special production from Clark. And dare I say, it's his jewel in the horror crown, as it boasts an excellent game cast of then-name stars and character actors, dreaded atmosphere, and a surprise ending that make the production unique for its time. Black Christmas takes place at the small sorority house of Pi Kappa Sigma, led by the house mother, Mrs. Mack, played by Marion Waldman. The house is inhabited by several female <laughs> college students, uh, Barb Cord, played by Margaret Kidder, Jessica Bradford, played by Olivia Hussey, Phyllis Carlson, played by Andrea Martin, Claire Harrison, played by Lynn Griffin, and a few others. While the sorority is having a little Christmas party, they don't realize that a mysterious stranger has entered their house and is lurking about the, a- the upstairs attic. At the same time, the students are receiving obscene phone calls by a man whom the sorority has dubbed the Moaner. (laughs) Afterwards, Claire heads upstairs to pack her clothes as her father plans to pick her up to celebrate Christmas at home. But the unknown assailant attacks Claire by placing a plastic bag over her head and suffocating the poor girl to to death then dragging Claire's body up to the attic and places her body on the rocking chair. Merry Christmas, everybody! (laughs) So the next day, Claire's father arrives to find that she hasn't met him outside the campus, and he begins to worry about what happened to her. 
At the same time, a 13-year-old girl is also reported missing to Lieutenant Ken Fuller, played by John Saxon. At night, Lieutenant Fuller sets a search party out, and the 13-year-old is found dead. When the disappearance of Claire and the constant barrage of obscene phone calls to the sorority house is brought to Lieutenant Fuller's attention, he has the phones tapped at the house and relies on Jessica to to help keep the mysterious caller on the phone so the police can pinpoint the caller's location. But as the story unfolds and tensions rise, Lieutenant Fuller suspects that the caller could be someone Jessica might be close to. Yes, folks, this is Black Christmas a.m. A very interesting and, 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 yes, it is a horror classic. I think primarily because of the fact that on the onset, when one looks at it, it does play like a – it does in a certain way play like a traditional slasher thrill, but it is also a thriller movie. It's also quite bloodless in certain parts. Right. A, a lot of the killings happen off screen yes, yes. Or, or, or they're alluded to. Right. And that, that, that's what I kind of enjoyed about this movie. Right, right. Um, and the killings are also slightly diverse. I mean we do get the classic scene where Lynn Griffin's character gets the plastic bag put over it and she's suffocated to death. But then, of course, you've got other death sequences in this movie that don't quite follow that that pattern. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. <clears throat> I first saw this movie many years ago, um, and I was like, it was to me at the time being a young kid. I found it kind of dull. And, and, and yeah. But over the years, I've really I've come and repeated watchings because you know you watch it here, or there, you pick it up. I've really become to respect it and love it and just. Think it's it's a fantastic film. Yeah, it really is. I, I can understand why too, because it is a slow burn of a movie. Because it, when you, when you're a young kid and you want to watch horror, you're like you, you want to yeah, see yeah. you know body counts, you want to see Jason, right? Or but this, is, like I said, we said, was more, like we mentioned, is more psychological. It's more right, and and the, and the dialogue. It's so I, Bob Clark really took it, uh, took the dialogue and made it his own, so to speak. Like I, the other gentleman, we mentioned his name, who who wrote who helped uh, him write it. He who wrote, wrote the the Bob Clark, and it was it was. Uh, uh, Roy Moore. Roy, Roy Moore. And he just – he tinkered with it a little bit. He put a little bit of levity in there. Mm-hmm. I I love – I was I think it's the, the Sergeant Nash. Sergeant the desk, Nash. The desk, the desk who's sergeant. Like one of the most inept well, morons. He's not – I mean I agree. He makes a lot of – he makes a lot of stupid mistakes. But you do you do sort of feel bad for him at a certain level because of the fact that he's just trying to do his job yeah. even though he's not doing his job very well. Yeah. And, and there are a few scenes we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that well, later. I think the other. I mean, I I agree with you. I think if if one watches this the first time, let's say if you're not you're not familiar with this movie, or let's say you've heard of it, but you 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 haven't seen it and you watched the first time, I can imagine someone watching it the first time will probably be saying that it's nothing special because it's a slow moving movie. It's it's a slow burn. It's a little dry. All right, Um, but that's the intent. It is, and that that, and it works so well. Right, but yes, and I think the other reason why the movie works is because I I when I watch it. The movie feels like, you know, because standard slashers that we're so used to usually involve, like I said, teenage characters or or college students in this case. And they kind of have a somewhat juvenile storyline. This movie has a sort of adult storyline that kind of falls into it. I mean, like, dare I say, this movie feels like, you know, adults, let's say, that are not horror fans. Let's say if you're an adult and a horror movie isn't your cup of tea, a serious adult could watch this movie and really get into it right. because of the fact that Bob Clark did – I think the smart thing at the time was 
approach this as a psychological film because it does have a little bit of an Alfred Hitchcock feel right. to it and, and as it's well. More, it's, I have a feeling, you know, that it's more of a character-driven story. Yes, it is. Um, I do agree. With, uh, I believe, what's her name? Jessica's, what's her name? I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank. Jessica. Uh, well, Jessica's character played by yeah, Olivia Hussey. Olivia Hussey, yes, yes. yes that's what I was trying to remember. I was getting him confused between her real name and <laughs> her, her, her actual real, uh, her stage, her, right, right. her character's name. name. Yeah. And, but yeah, um, yeah with, with her interaction with Peter, um, basically. And, and what I like about this is that when the movie starts, we don't know who exactly is going to be the final girl or the, you know, yeah, yeah. of the film. Um, because there's just, there's so many girls that they have to kind of weed out. Well, Obviously, you got Margot Kidder's character. Right. Uh, who you think, she's she's pretty, she's kind of foul mouthed, she's dirty. Uh, you know, <laughs> she's completely drunk most yeah, of the time. Yeah, the she's movie. completely drunk most of the time. Um, Felicio. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Or the part where she talks about the turtles. <laughs> yeah, the turtles. That makes sex when she went to see the zebras. <laughs> yeah, and said, I watched the zebras instead. <laughs> yeah, Barb, yes. And then, and then you guys got, got um, uh, like you said, uh, uh, veteran actors like John Saxon playing yeah. uh, uh, Lieutenant Ken Fuller and um, Mrs. Mack are played by Marion Waldman. Yeah. Um, man, it just – and I, what I really liked about it is that the house mother is that they didn't – they made her to be almost like a drunken lush. Yeah. She's supposed to be in charge of these girls. Yeah, and she's just kind of like she's kind of like one of the shit. girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there's a, a, a there's a line by Margot uh, – not by Margot, but uh, – uh, oh, Margot Kidder, but Barb's character where she says, we're, we're running – we're not running – we're running, we're running a uh, sorority house, not a convent. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, no, and you mentioned cast. I got to tell you, yeah. one of the things about this movie that, that I think sort of – kind of bowls me over is that this is one of those horror movies where it actually has for the time and I, and I still think the cast is still great but I'm saying for that time a stellar cast that you kind of when you read off the names you kind of can't believe that they're in this movie because it doesn't feel like it's the type of genre they'd be associated with but then again this isn't the the type of movie. Yeah, yeah, or the type of movie. But then again, uh, let me just name one here. Uh, the main, One of the actors, Kira Duolia, yeah. it, it was in a thriller directed by Odo Preminger called Bunny Lake is Missing from 1965. Uh, Margot Kidder would go on to be in the Amityville Horror in 1979 directed by Stuart Rosenberg. Uh, Andrea Martin, she was in a horror film or actually a horror comedy earlier, a Canadian production called Cannibal Girls from 1972 directed by Ivan Reitman. Mm -hmm. uh, Lynn Griffin, the first murder victim. She was in Curtains that we talked about yes, the previous yes. one. I, I actually was doing some research. I'm like, oh my God, that's the same chick. Yeah. Because she was only on screen for like two minutes. Uh, Olivia Hussey would be in the uh, the, the, the two-part teleseries uh, uh, It from 1990. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Art Hindle would be in the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978, directed by Philip Kaufman, and he would be in The Brood from 1979, directed by David Cronenberg. Uh, Les Carlson, who plays the uh, the line operator. Graham. He, yeah, he's later in The Videodrome, also directed by David Cronenberg from 19, 1983. But I'd say the most interesting one is John Saxon, because he has quite a bit of horror credits, yeah. both before and after. He what? was in... Um, the Girl Who Knew Too Much from 1963, directed by Mario Bava. But now, but now, was he a police detective in that one as well? No, he was just like some – I guess he was some – not a random character, but he comes off as a random character, but then ends up becoming a love interest. Well, well, it's funny that you mentioned that because he – I think he became typecast as a police officer because he was in this groundbreaking film. And then 10 years later, he was in Wes Craven's groundbreaking film, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Street yeah. where he played another detective or lieutenant. <laughs> right, right. But he also – he's also in Queen of Blood from 1966, directed by Curtis Harrington. Uh, then he has an interesting Italian horror film connection. He's in Cannibal Apocalypse from 1980, directed by Antonio Margheriti. He's in the Italian thriller called The Scorpion with Two Tails from 1982, directed by Sergio Martino. And 
He's in Tenebra from 1982, directed by Dario Argento. So this is well. I guess we're gonna next next season we're gonna be doing a John Saxton retrospective. Oh my god! I mean, <laughs> but I mean, I again, like if you think about it, for that time, it, it's kind of interesting how these particular performers. Olivia Hussey was still fairly well known at that time. She did do this the film adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. I think, from 1969. Um, and of course, Margot Kidder was doing a lot of stuff then. Uh, sixty eight, but yeah, yeah, oh yeah, sixty nine. I'm sorry, sixty eight. But it's just interesting how you have like these stellar casts, and you've got these, I guess you can say, young and up and comers, right. and then you've got the uh, the the well seasoned pro um, character actors that just are just peppered throughout this whole movie. Right. And, and and it seems like no one's overstepping their bounds. Like no one's oh, character no, is more no. more important than the other one. No one does in that in this There's, movie. It's still very. I mean, like everybody knows what role they play. They play them very well. They stick with what they're supposed to do. And and I, I I what I also love about the movie is just the winter atmosphere is just so perfect for it too. Right. It really helps sell the the dread on yeah. this. Oh, I, no, I, I just rewatched this movie last night, so it was fresh in my memory. Right. I know Claire had a boyfriend. I, I'm, his name is escaping me. Um, um uh, well, it, it's um, it's uh, a Chris, actor. Yeah, Chris Aiden played by Art Hindle. Yes, yeah. and I, I, I love when they, when they introduce his character. He's on a hockey rink, yeah, right? yeah, and he yeah. plays a goalie, and he comes out. And he's wearing this just badass, like pimp, like <laughs> fur coat. <laughs> oh, I know, and, yeah. And the, the, Talk for, about the for, era <laughs> for, for, for a brief for a brief moment where, the, where he was walking into the police sta- station and he berates um, the Sergeant death sergeant, Nash, yeah. Sergeant Nash. You could hear the Canadian him just for a like one bit. word. Yeah, you can hear the Canadian yeah. pop out. Don't in a you know, or something, yeah, you know, yeah. like or the, the father that's. Um, Trying to look for uh, uh, Claire's character yeah. when he says about, and he yeah. kind of does, he, t- he kind of gets to the part where it gets a boot, but then he goes a boat or something yes. like that. Like he's able to sort of accentuate a little better, but the Canadian almost came out in them. Yeah. Uh, also, I think in Sergeant Nash's character, yeah. too, because at one point when he says about, you can almost hear it, too. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just something I, I picked up, like, because this is recorded in mono, and I had to, like, really turn up my TV to hear some of the yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes it gets a little blur, or, you know, a little fuzzy. So I'm like, and I, and I just, you know, rewound it back a little bit. I'm like, oh my god, there's a Canadian accent peeking through. Right, right. Um, yeah. Well, this was a um, a, a Canadian tax right, shelter production, right. and, and it's kind of interesting because Bob Clark would do these some of these films, like uh, I know, De- and um, where there would be a tax shelter going on. So Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things from '72 and Deaf Dream from '74 were shot in Florida, I believe, and I believe that was part of when Florida had a tax shelter program going on at that time. And then Clark kind of relocated some productions in Canada. Uh, Black Christmas is one of them. Um, Breaking Point from 76 is one of them. And I know that Christmas Story was also one of those tax, Canadian tax oh, really? shelters as well. I, I, that, that, one I, that one I didn't know oh, about. Yeah, or at least it was part of one. So it's very interesting because we're talking about how the Canadians coming about, about <laughs> coming about in this about. movie, about in this movie, and just to explain it in case nobody understands, that's because these were part of the Canadian tax shelter films that were going on. Actually, that was pretty big in seven in the seventy four, seventy five, seventy six because David Cronenberg's big breakout movie Shivers from seventy four was a, a Canadian tax shelter production. Also co financed by the Canadian government, which got in, in a heap of trouble, although. <laughs> That he that kind of ended up blowing up in the the Canadian government's face because they basically were told, well, you do realize that um, all your art films that you've been financing through the Canadian government haven't made one cent back, and here's this low budget exploitation horror film filled with blood, nudity, and sex. 
that made all of its money back and then some for the government. So it was so it was it was kind of an interesting um, uh, situation with the uh, tax shelter programs that Canada had at the time. But uh, yeah, this was one of them, and it managed to also be distributed by Warner Brothers in the states. So it's kind of interesting how this major studios began sort of picking up on these uh, low-budget horror films, and I'm certain they were sold on this movie because of the uh, the stellar cast. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I I I do like this film's. I guess you can say. Um, psychological horror aspect because like we said, there's not really a lot of bloody right. killings in this movie. It's, yeah, and, it's... and getting back to the actual story, I mean, we will get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there, sweet. Uh, most of the, uh, the violence happens off screen. There's a couple of scenes, especially after uh, Claire disappears, then we get, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, death and or killings going on just yet. Um, yeah. Uh, basically, it's like, where's Claire? Why is she missing? Is she at a boyfriend's house? Is she, you know, you know, did she elope? Did she just go somewhere else without mm-hmm. telling anybody? Yeah. We get uh, the interaction between Mrs. Mack and Claire's father, um, <laughs> which is, which some, is sort of, some sort of really classic stuff, right yeah, there. Yeah, no, it's really funny. Yeah. I, I love the interaction because the father is already starting to suspect if you know this was the right college to send his daughter to because you know Mrs. Mack's job is to make sure these girls are sort of on the straight and narrow. Right. And I love the shot where it's a great and again this is what i like about again what low budget movies have to do or particularly horror films is trying to take advantage of the things that you can put in movies that you know you can't afford but just taking advantage of the setting and there's cuz it because you get this close up shot of this pictured series of this grandmother with a smile on her face and then it's a snapshot yeah, and it, it slowly it shows, shows her giving the middle finger, yeah, middle <laughs> finger and the father's looking at those pictures and then he turns over and he looks at Mrs. Mack and Mrs. Mack kind of lets out this little smile on her face like oh well you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, then, and then you see her putting her hand up against a poster because yes. on the poster there's two naked people like laying on each other looking like they're having sex yeah but and, it's in the peace right, sign and in the peace sign so she's trying to and, 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 and it looks like it could be like Silly, like bad comedy routine, right. but it works because you know she's trying to use this situation where she's trying to make, like she's trying to get this guy out of the room basically, so right. he can like you know get on his good side. And he's put, she puts her hand up there, and she's trying to hide from it. And, right. and you, and again, it works because you know that it's not the plan right. isn't working, right? Right? Because, <laughs> because you can still see it. <laughs> yeah, because once once he once she try, like she tries to worm her way past the door, uh-huh. he when the door slowly closes, he gets the full shot. Of it, and he just has. You can just tell, even though you don't get a close up of his face, you can just tell from his backside that he probably is like. <sighs> and, I, and I also love that shot where she's calling for her cat Claude. Right. Yeah. Now Claude is no anybody just follow find the cat, find the killer. You know. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Like, nope. <laughs> oh my god. Well, I love it when she's calling for Claude and she drops her purse and then she finally goes, Claude, where are you, prick? And then the father <laughs> yeah, yeah, comes up something. and she goes. That's very, very nice, nice of you, you to take me <laughs> to the store. store. <laughs> and um, but yeah, it's peppered about with some humorous moments to sort of, I guess, you could like like reduce the tension, right? And then, <laughs> and then you get the the the, the um, after that you get Mrs. Mack um, coming back to the house, right? Um, the uh, the the other girls in the sorority are going. Most of the house has gone out to right, help with right. the search party for this right, missing right. girl, thirteen year old girl. And Mrs. Mack is all alone in the house again, and she f- hears Claude, and she goes up to the attic, and she finds Claire there. Right. Uh, and then you see, um, which is a very strange death sequence, because 
you see you, you never see Billy or Agnes or whoever the hell it was, um, which is, I love that aspect. You only see the close up of their eyes. Yeah, yeah. And you see the hands and you see him shove like this like giant enormous like hook. You know, like you would use it yeah, like yeah, a loading like, dock kind right, of situation. Right, right. And it flies and, over and, and manages and to it, grab it, her and pull her up. Yeah. And I'm like Yeah, the logistics on that, that are that, that had me I'm like, what the, okay. the logistics <laughs> on that are a little spotty, but yeah. I, I have to say though, I, I like how at least the killer is being a little more diverse right. in his killings and say uh what's gonna happen in the remake when we talk about right. it because there's a part where they kind of overdo one particular killing aspect. But right. now What's interesting about this, like I said, there is a serious storyline in here, and, and and it's hard for us to kind of right. break down the story into a straightforward plot line for you because a lot of things are actually happening in this movie. You have this unknown killer, stalking who, right, who's lurking in the attic. Then we have the the Claire character played by Lynn Griffin, who's basically um, disappeared, right. even though she's she's been killed. And then we also have this other moment where. This uh, worried mother is looking for her 13-year-old right. daughter. And then you have another plot coming up in Between here. Peter and – Yeah, between uh, P- between Peter played by Kira Duvalier and, and Jess, Jess played by Olivia, Olivia Hussey. Hussey. Because as it turns out, uh, Jess reveals to Peter that she's pregnant. Right. And she doesn't want to keep the baby. Right. And that um, – uh, then all of a sudden Peter flips out. Right. Saying, well, he, it becomes a serious conflict for right, him. Right. And, and Peter uh, – a little background information on Peter is he is a serious pianist and mm-hmm. he's been studying for for like the past eight years to become like this major piano player kind of yeah, person. Right. And, um, and he and he and he ends up blowing the audition after like spending, you know, for like days in the studio just perfecting his craft. Right. Um and then you see Peter pretty much get really unhealthy about the situation. Yeah, he is. He's um, very very disturbed about it. And 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 it's interesting because he wants to marry her and she's like when we first started dating, I told you, and you told me your dreams, I told you my dreams. I still want to do those dreams just because your plans have changed doesn't make it right. I shouldn't have to change my plans either. Right. Well, you know, and and in the movie of course touches upon a very very sensitive situation because oh, yeah. because um the Jessica character Basically, doesn't want to have the baby, and and, and she she insi- well, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but I, she kind of sort of insinuates that uh, she wants to just get rid of it. Right, she wants to have an abortion. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, 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 and forty years ago, that was a hot topic. Oh, and, yeah. And even right now, it's, it's sort of a, it's still, a hot topic. Yeah, it, forty years later, right? And and and, and, and I think, and like I said, the reason why it's the storyline for this movie feels very serious is because it feels like a very adult. It's a very adult issue being brought up and talked right. about. It's, it doesn't become a political situation no, because it no. doesn't delve too much into it. But I remember talking to somebody at my work because we were talking about this movie who kind of told me he didn't he, – he, he likes this movie but doesn't love it because he, he felt that the uh, the abortion aspect, he felt like there was this sort of weird pro-abortion mess – no, 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 uh, pro, no, anti-abortion message being sort of underneath it. I, I, mean, I, I really can't see it that way. No, it's just two people who have different, different right. opinions. I can't see it that way because – it's because it's not. I mean, I can kind of see that maybe being there if you want to interpret it that way. Because after all, it's about the Jessica character basically being the one who essentially becomes the 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 last person in this movie, sort of standing. Yeah, she's the final girl. She's the final girl. And not, it, not to give out spoilers. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but but but, and I can kind of see that that idea being in this movie in terms of if you want to interpret it that way. But at the same time, I, that was I, never the. I, I don't believe that was never the intent. I, I don't think it was. I, I think the reason why it kind of comes off that way is because it, you can interpret it that way. But I think just looking at it in terms of a serious movie, that it it 
I don't think it was trying to, this, to go that This that movie direction. had so much stuff jam-packed into like oh, 98 yeah. minutes. I mean, and, and like you said, a lot of adult serious themes. Right. And not just, you know, kids getting drunk and high at the local right. you know, and I think that's, uh, campground, and you I know, think, getting slaughtered. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's different about this movie, very much so. But like I said, I, I, I think it, the idea of the, you know, abortion or not to, you know, to abort or not to abort basically um, is basically just part of the adult storyline. And also giving these characters something to do besides, as you said, just drinking and getting stoned and getting killed. Because what's great about it is is that you do care for some of these characters. Well, and another thing to bring it back to what you're saying, where they're where they're having this conversation where Peter is wants to get married and do the more traditional thing, and and, and he's kind of like set in his like I guess the old values. You have old values clashing with you know um, newer ideals. I, I would also say it's a clash of responsibilities too, because not right. saying that the Olivia Hussey character wants to be irresponsible right. to do that, but but and get the abort to abort the child, but right. but more like. She's trying to look at it in terms of what it's going to happen towards her life. Again, right. it's kind of like what you said, like they have these plans for themselves, you know, and the Peter character is willing to go forward with those plans and have the kid. Right. But, After he blew his audition right. and, and, you know, and, and pretty much destroyed his piano. <laughs> at, at, right. At, I mean, it, it's, you know, you can look at it depending on your own personal views being selfish either way. Right. Um, it's a very interpretive uh, right. theme. Right. And, that, and that's what, what I really loved. And I, th- and I had a thought, but it escaped me. So but let's keep talking. I'll bring it back. Well, so and now another thing I love about this movie too, and again, I think it's the great thing about performance is that I love – I, men- I remember mentioning this back during the Severpod days when we talked about this movie. Uh, I really love John Saxon's performance of oh, this yeah. because he – just that scene where when he's sitting at the desk – and the the worried mother is telling him about how her 13-year-old hasn't come home yet and he's sitting there and he's trying to like really like sort of like logically like look at it like, well, OK, maybe she's staying at a friend's house right. or maybe, you know, his performance – I really love his performance there because you can tell like, you know, he's definitely playing the role of a, of a police officer who has to take all these things that he's getting in very seriously. Right. And he's also, you know, because it's – you know, like the police are getting like – you can imagine what a police station's like. Like they're getting calls 24-7. Right. There's a problem. There's a domestic dispute. There's right. all these things and it's, it's his job to take care of these things. Right. And here now he's got a situation where possibly a 13-year-old is missing and perhaps maybe dead. Right. And I love his performance where he's just trying to calm her down and be very rational about right. it. Right. And, and how he so, so – um, let's say I guess elegantly transfers between – Taking all this like very heavy and a, a, a lot of bad stuff going on, right. potentially bad stuff going on, and him and I, I want to I just call him the laughing detective. Like there's the other lieutenant next right. to him, He's just and, and with Nash, and they're like and they're having this thing where where Barb had come into the uh, police station that er, earlier yes, to fill out a report. Yeah, because she's they're reporting that Claire is missing. Yeah, right. And of course they think Sergeant Nash isn't taking it very seriously. So and so so then Barb is like, well, there's a new number, and then she starts spelling out fallacious. And yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, is that a new number? <laughs> like, he's taking it very, 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 very he's, seriously. Now he, but he's so clueless yeah. on the fact that she's just ribbing him, right? And he and he and he's taking it, and he's just got, he's clueless, like you said. And then uh, you know, uh, uh, Saxon's character is looking over the the, the files, and he's like. <laughs> Uh, Nash, can you come in here for a second? No, I love his I love his reaction because he's sitting there and he's and at first he starts going F E and he, and you just hear him softly say 
fuck. And, and, and then you hear the guy in the background laughing. And he, <laughs> and, and, and he has he has like four words of dialogue. He's like he's just sitting there like laughing his ass off. And then he and then, and then he goes over to Nash and he goes, "What number is this?" And he goes, "Oh, it's a new number." He goes. Nash, you couldn't pick, pick your, your nose, nose without detailed instructions. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, this is, and then Nash goes, "I get it now. It's something dirty." <laughs> but um, so basically, so as the story keeps getting more grimmer and yes. serious, serious, you know, by the minute, right. even though we have these light moments of you know humor, um, they they Saxon's character leads the search party, and they they eventually find the thirteen year old girl. Right. And at one point, um, Olivia Hussey's character. They keep getting those those weird obscene phone calls. Right, and, she, and she's 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 I think she's the only one left in the house. Yeah, uh, because so, the rest of them are out in search party. She came back. I'm sorry. Right, and and so she calls the police and reports it, and then of course the father, of 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 Claire realizes that maybe they should be looking into us because Claire's missing. This girl has been found, and they've been getting the, and the sorority has been getting these these obscene. weird obscene call, phone calls. So it's brought to Lieutenant Fuller's uh, attention. So he decides. Because – and I find it very interesting that Fuller's character, even though he doesn't quite like – he doesn't quite say, well, maybe there's a connection. He begins to suspect maybe there could be a connection. So he he, t- he decides to basically go off a hunch and have their phone tapped at right. the sorority. Now, and what I like about this too is once again, if you pay attention to the details because he – there are three – I think what he said, there's three – they said there's three th- phones in the house. Uh, two, two, two one, one, in the, one, in, one in the living room and one, one in the hall or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but there's also one upstairs. Oh, there, OK. Yeah, there's one upstairs in Mrs. Mack's room, but that's a different phone number. Oh, OK. So, so – I must have missed yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So they tapped the two phones downstairs. Mm-hmm. Now they're listening into the phone call conversations and, and, and they're trying to figure out where they can pinpoint uh, right. where the calls are coming from. And in the meantime, Margot Kidder's character, who's basically been drunk most of the time, is now upstairs sleeping. Yeah, uh, uh, Jess puts her to bed, I believe. All right, right. And there's a very interesting moment where she has an attack and we discover that she's asthmatic. Then, right. But and, the, then she, and then she says that she has, she has, a, she has a strange dream about like some sort of stalker or somebody killing right, her. Right, right, and, right. And, but then I love too when Olivia Hussey starts, goes outside and listens to the Christmas carolers right. and all of a sudden our killer shows up and stabs Margot Kidder to death with the uh, uh, crystal-looking unicorn, yeah. which is a very – again, a very nicely done scene. It plays off very well. Right. How they cut in, uh, cut in between uh, the, 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 the stabbing of, of Barb mm-hmm. and the kids outside caroling. Yeah. Um, and uh, – now, when she, when Olivia Hussey's character gets these phone calls, because because her job is to basically try to keep the, the, the obscene caller on the phone, right? So they can at least try to pinpoint the location right. of where the call is coming from. And then she gets a phone call from Peter, yes, who's, who's obviously now I believe drunk, right? And and, and, and a little upset and very emotional. And uh, so that there, John Saxon picks up the phone at the police station, and he's, and he's like wondering who, what was he talking about? What what is he, you know, talking about? You're you're, you're going to kill a baby or right. whatever it is. And then she, no, well, but we or, should or, go or whatever abortion. But sorry. We, but we should go back for one moment because there's a moment where when Olivia Hussey comes back to the house and gets the phone call. Oh, the obscene phone call. The obscene yes. phone call first. And then she calls the police. Peter shows up, and of course, it's another dialogue scene where they're trying, to, where Peter's trying yes, to sorry. convince her not to get rid of the child because he thinks, because he, he makes a comment saying you're gonna, it's like removing a wart. Right. And then when he leaves, and then there's another obscene phone call. The strange character who's calling says that exact line, and she says, "Oh my God!" And of course, we we begin to suspect maybe it's Peter calling. Because right. you remember, Peter came from uh, upstairs. She was downstairs with the yes. carolers, right? Right. And he's right. like, "I was taking a nap," but pretty close to Barb's room. Yeah, yeah. Who- and, and and 
when Saxon begins to feel maybe Peter has something to do with this, maybe, you know, she begins to kind of rationalize, well, there's no way he could because he he was here when the phone call came, you right. know, or he, or he was here. When, but then again, like I said, it, the, the movie takes these right. nice little turns right. to sort and, of and like get, throw they, us off. And you get the conversation between uh, Phyllis and um, and Jess about yeah. saying, well, we've never really liked Peter. But we always thought he was kind of a jerk, but I don't think he's a killer, you know. Right, right. So eventually Saxon has that call, Peter's call traced. Right. Because as it turns out, that that's not where the call – well – they don't find out that's where the call is coming from. Right. So he goes to the, the to the observatory at, in the uh, in the college and he finds the piano is destroyed. It's kind of, in a way, sort of solidifying to Saxon's character that maybe Peter is definitely the deep on the deep end for this. So now they're able to finally pinpoint where the phone call comes from. And do you know where the phone call comes from? It's coming from inside the house. Yes, because it's coming from Mrs. Mac's phone upstairs because, like I said <sighs> – that's a different phone number. Right. And I love the scene where John Saxon tells Nash, he says – because when they get the number, he doesn't right. He doesn't say at first the number is coming from the house. Right. But he said this is – it's coming from this address. Right. And he goes – and he tells Nash, Nash – Please yeah, just get her out of the house. Yeah, Nash, get her out of the house. Don't she, tell her why. Don't tell her it's, that, that the call is coming from the house. Get her out safely. Yeah, and then he says, and Nash, if you screw this up, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and so Nash is really – he's really trying hard I to know. get her out of the phone and out of the house. All he had – and then he finally ends up saying, yes, your suspicions are correct. The killer is calling from, from the, the house. house. Get out of the house. Now – uh, and, and so she's obviously very worried about her sorority sister. So she runs up the stairs. She's yelling for Barb and Phil, or Phyllis. Yeah. Barb, Phyllis, come on, get out, get out. Where and, are you? And she finds Barb and Phyllis yeah. dead. Phyllis' death sequence, by the way, is like completely off screen. I want to say it because I was going to bring that up because I didn't. I never saw Phyllis. They, didn't, they never even allude to it. They just Phyll, Phyllis went to her room. Well, there's uh, a shot where Phyllis goes to. Um, I think it was either it was either. Um, Barb's room, or I think it was Barb's room, because she walks inside, okay. doesn't know that she's dead, and it's like this basically this medium wide shot where she walks in, and then she hears um, the the basically the killer upstairs making because he, he's able to throw his voice off because right. at one point you hear him like meowing like a cat, right. or when he calls up on the phone he's able to like just go back and forth doing these weird voices, right. and you hear like a, a weird voice come from behind the door when she walks, and all of a sudden the door just closes. Right. So her, her death sequence is basically it's very, it's, Yeah, it's very implied. I mean. Yeah, yeah, very implied. But uh, she finds them dead, and then, of course, uh, she's trying to get out, and then she eventually ends up downstairs in the attic. And then, oh, you mean the, in the cellar? In the cellar. In the basement. She ends up in the basement in the cellar. And who shows up trying to uh, – who shows up? Outside the house, yes, Peter, and Peter. his and his arrival is very weird because once again, it, it's like they're trying to elude that maybe he could be the killer because he sees Jess and he's like yeah. he wipes away the snow from the window and he starts knocking, going Jess, Jess, and then afterwards he kicks, psh, yeah. just breaks the window, and, and then he and, he, and then she's hiding and she's hiding like a scared like a kitten or animal, yeah, yeah. She's got like this freaking poker, like the like a uh, fireplace, fireplace poker, fireplace yeah. poker, and he's like Jess, why didn't you call me when I when I was calling? Yeah, why, yeah. You know, what's wrong? You know, and then all of a sudden we cut back upstairs or cut to another. Another scene, and we cut back, and well, yeah, the oh, no, police yeah, show up. up. Yeah, they they break down the door. They're they're, they're searching. They're apparently they're searching the entire house. Which, by the way, they did a piss poor job searching the entire yes, house. Yes, they did a piss poor job. Because um, when we get to that yeah, final, we'll exactly, tell you. yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So they find uh, uh, Jessica or Jess in the basement, and Peter is slumped over her. Yeah, they, he's basically for, for, dead. For, for a minute, we think it looks like they're both dead, uh, or or whatever. Uh, 
Jess wakes up and Peter is just there, just dead. She killed him with the poker. Right, right. And, and of course, we don't know what happened. We, yeah. we know that she it's, killed him, but we yeah. don't know it's, what again, happened. Again, off screen, completely, you know, you can make up your own mind what kind of happened. And, and I love how at the end of it, they're basically trying to piece everything together. They're still not sure of how it go, how, how everything went, but they, they put Jessica upstairs. Yeah, they, they have sed- her sedated, sedated by the doctor to and, get her some rest. Uh, and of course, John Saxon character tells him keep the reporters out. And we're gonna after. So, so basically, they did. They they searched the place. They didn't quite search it very well. And, and the thing is, they have at one point they have like oh, let's see, there's Saxon's character, the doctor, the dad of, uh, of Claire, Sergeant Nash just shows up yeah, too. <laughs> Nash that useless been, toolbox. He, he should have been fired yeah. at that point. So, I told you not yeah. to tell her. Yeah. Uh, so so you got about what like what you got the doctor. Dad, Claire's father, Claire's yeah. father, yeah. So you got about four other people. Five, yeah, at one point, five other people in the room. Then all of a sudden, they all just clear out. <laughs> well, they clear out because now they feel like perhaps everything is wrapped yeah. up. There's yeah. not much else they can do she's, at this she's, point. She's going to be sleeping for a few hours, and, t- and they won't be uh, won't be of use to anybody until tomorrow. Right. And they do have a police outside on guard. But right. what's what's great about this ending is what. So let's just set it up for you. So yeah. they all leave, and Claire is no. I'm sorry, they all leave. And Jess is sleeping in the bed, and the camera pulls back, and it like sort of dollies over very slowly, and it tilts up over towards the attic, and it turns out that not all has really been basically not everything has come full circle. Right. That basically the real killer is still, is still upstairs, upstairs in the attic with uh, Claire's body and Miss Mac Miss Mac's body, body still there. So. And this is what I think is sort of I, – I, well, I, I shouldn't say I sort, sort of though. I'm certain it is true. What um, part of its cult legacy is sort of came across – sort of built on because this is one of the few movies where the killer actually has gotten away with everything. Right. In fact, if you think about it, in a way, the killer has sort of framed Peter for being Inadvertently. Murdered. Inadvertently, <laughs> yes. Inadvertently because you know, it sort of framed him and has managed to get away oh. and we never find out. Anything about this killer's right, right. motives? And, and, and as you pull back from the house, you see you see the police officer outside or lighting a cigarette and walking yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. And we hear the we, I think we hear the phone ringing again. Right, right. Um, but this is what I, what I want to tell you, or this is what I want to bring up before that. That had slipped my mind. But okay, this is a horror movie, right? And in horror movies, in thriller movies, there are certain rules that you don't kind of un, unbroken, unwritten rules that you don't kind of break. Right, right. We find out just as pregnant. How would it look in a – I mean, do you, could you imagine the uproar if the the uh, some, if the if she got killed uh, being a pregnant person, uh, a pregnant woman? I mean, I, I think there. I think some people, you know, maybe back then the the um, morals could have been. Well, the morals, but I think maybe just the circumstance. Right. And and again, it's kind of the way. I, I don't think the writers would have necessarily said themselves. Well, we've if we kill her and she's pregnant, you know, I mean, yeah. we're going to get. I, I just, I just thought about that because when we get in this other, when we get in the other film, that there's other, you know, religious groups and and they possibly didn't have that much of influence back then. I don't think it was something that would have necessarily but, have popped up in anybody's mind unless they really were like because right. that, that, that popped in my head. I'm like, you know, she's pregnant. She's you know a young woman. I mean, okay, yeah, we can always, you can always off women and guys left and right, but I mean. You never kill a dog, basically. Yeah, you don't well, kill babies. they say that all the time. Yeah. But sometimes we see movies where not an animal really gets killed, but right. an animal gets right. killed. But yeah, like, but even to imply that. Right. But the, the thing is, there's 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 exceptions I, to the rule. I I don't know. I don't I don't think so. I think it's just if 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 they went in that direction where if, if she did get killed, right? I think it would have just been just nothing actually to tell you the truth. But I got to tell you, I because like I said, watching this again, mm-hmm. the. The, the film's ending is just – it does stick with you because what's interesting about this movie is that it's 
on the one hand, we don't really understand what this killer's motivation is. Right. He's kind of just there. He starts he, – he has – we have to assume he has a split personality issue. I, I, yes. If indeed the killer is also the prank – is the obscene caller. But, <laughs> but um, um, at the same time, I'm not disappointed that we don't get to know anything about it. Yeah, there are some movies that they do that with and it doesn't work. I think this is one of the few that does work and it works because the atmosphere is right. The uh, the performances are good enough or good to sustain everything, and it makes a very good for its time surprise ending that kind of does throw you off. But like I said, it's interesting how the killer manages to inadvertently frame Peter. Right, for being right. The that, 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 that's what really I mean, like so talk yeah, about a sting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Peter, not, not only does he not get his, get the, get the, he blows his recital or his contract. He fucking gets killed. Right, right. He gets killed, and he's probably he probably gets accused of being the murderer in this movie, <laughs> or at least being involved in some you know criminal activity. So yeah, I mean. I, that's all I can say about this movie. I, like I said, I wish we could have done this recording when the upcoming Scream Factory release. Unfortunately, it's being released today as we speak. Yes, uh, so, but I'm so, certain that they will do a stellar job with this. Oh, I yes. hope they will. I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm like I, I would bet vital parts of my anatomy. A quote from uh, yeah, <laughs> Lethal yeah, Weapon, yeah. right, right, on that. Or so, Lethal Weapon Three. I don't have much to say about this. I, it's still this is still a, a very effective uh, little horror yes. classic, and, and one and one that if you watch it. And you don't really like it? Give give it another couple of viewings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I know it's hard to say if you don't really like a movie to give it, but this is one that if you don't absolutely love it, yeah, put it ab- on the back burner. Yeah, come back, back to, to it like a couple months afterwards. Exactly. And you'll you'll see what we mean when we say this. There's some there, the movie is unique for the time, and it does hold up very well. I mean, yeah, I can imagine someone younger would be complaining, saying that there's not much of a body count. But this isn't yeah, this isn't one of those it, body count it, movies. It, it doesn't really need it. It's it's a, it's a more and it's I think it's, it's a more thinking man's um, horror thriller. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and many people will say, "Oh, thinking man's horror," but but then again, you know, Alfred Hitchcock and Psycho. You know, right. I mean, so there exactly. are some of those out there. So, so I just have a few fun facts. If you were, you, oh, I got okay. I'm, so final rating, thumbs up, right? Oh, of, <laughs> course. Oh, of course, of course, of course, course yeah. of course, of course, of course. Even if you chopped off my thumbs, I would pick them up <laughs> and say thumbs up. You know, <laughs> with the other fingers that I have. <laughs> okay, so here I've got. Um, I just got a few. I'll run through them. Number one, in 1986, Olivia Hussey met producers of the film Roxanne from 1987, since they were interested in casting her for the title role of Roxanne. Co-star Steve Martin met her and said, oh, my God, you're in one of my favorite all-time films. Her thinking it was Romeo and Juliet from 1968. <laughs> Olivia was surprised to find that it was actually Black Christmas from 1974. Yeah. <laughs> Martin had claimed he'd seen that movie around 27 times. <laughs> you know what? Isn't that amazing? I I, I love Black Christmas. And right. it's, but on a certain level, because it has this stellar cast in it, right. you can only imagine them thinking themselves you know, in, in their mind going, wow, I've been in bigger movies than this. And you run in, they run into people who say, I've seen you in Black Christmas. And that's, you know, like, I guess you could say, it's sort of like with, um, um, in a sense, like saying, like with John Saxon, he's done like a lot of movies. And to this day, he has people who say, oh, yeah, I saw you in my favorite movie, uh, uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, you know, from, <laughs> and it's like one of the few movies that, you know, he still remembers it. Right. But it's one of those movies that he did kind of just as a lark and he, that he admitted in an interview. He did it. Be, he did that movie because the actress called him up and told him in a very shaky Italian accent, you're going to do an, an art an art film. And <laughs> and he comes by and he goes, no, it's a it's a thriller movie, <laughs> you know, and he's and he never thought that anybody would remember that movie. And, and yet people do. So it's like one of those situations where 
you know, Olivia Hussey's in like Romeo and Juliet, right. which is a which is a pretty yeah. good uh, adaptation of the Shakespeare right. film. And yet here she is being told by Steve Martin, oh, you're in my favorite movie, Black Christmas. Which is a, which is a low budget, you <laughs> yeah. know. It's a low budget tax shelter uh, yeah, movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, oh, number two, the film is regarded as being one of the first slasher films with The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, Bay of Blood from 1971, Psycho from 1960, and Peeping Tom from 1960 preceding this film. It set, it set out uh, the layer for films such as John Carpenter's from Halloween from 1978. Mm-hmm. However, director Bob Clark considered it to be more of a psychological horror film than a slasher yeah, film. Yeah, which I do. I mean, there is a slasher film element which we discussed, right. but I do agree with him. I do see more of the psychological element that pops up in this film. All right. Um, let's see here. Oh, the original title of the film. The original title of the film script was "Stop Me." Um, it was director <laughs> Bob Clark who came up with the with the title "Black Christmas," saying he liked the irony of something dark occurring during such a festive holiday. Yeah, I "Stop Me" sounds like um, there's there's a uh, Hammer film from 1959. It was the British title of it was originally called "The Full Treatment," but the English American title was called "Stop Me Before I Kill." That would have been <laughs> A lot better than Stop Me because Stop Me is such a – I mean it's a very vague title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean if he was in that frame of mind, like maybe we can use that. But Black Christmas certainly was the better title. So. All right. Oh, uh, d- uh, Director Clark claims that he rewrote half of uh, Roy, Roy Moore's script, adding some humor into the film. Moore was also against the idea of never seeing a killer. However, when he saw the finished film, he was very pleased with it. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. We, you're right. That's something we never mentioned, but we never see the killer. We no. only either see, like, his hands or, like, his feet or, or his eyes or his eyes or his POV shots. Yeah. And if you – the closest thing we've got to is when, when um, Olivia uh, Hussey's character um, – Comes in looking at for Barb and Margo, Barb and uh, Phil, Phyllis. Yeah. And we see her, she sees, she slams him back because he's against the other side of the door and she pushes back against the person, right. him or her, you know. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. We never see the killer's face. <laughs> it's, but then that's, that's the whole mystery behind it, too, of course. But yeah. Oh, oh um, just two more. Um, this was Elvis's favorite uh, horror film. Uh, his, tradi- his tradition was to watch it every Christmas. Now his family keeps up that tradition alive by still watching it. You know what? You mentioned that just recently. I watched because I bought it on Blu-ray. Uh, Bubba Hotep. Oh, I-, I need to see that. Yeah, I've with, heard so many good things with about Bruce that. Bruce Campbell playing Elvis, right. <laughs> and I watched that after I watched this movie, and I didn't realize that until uh, I was like when I was writing up my uh, my, my my synopsis for right. Black Christmas, and I just happened to look on the trivia on IMDb, and it mentioned Elvis. And I was just sitting there, going, I just watched a movie involving Elvis battling an evil mummy. <laughs> so I just have two more fun facts, and then we can put the bow on this one. Um, this film holds the honor of being the first seasonal slasher film, a horror movie taking place during the holiday. And a, and a horror movie history would later be followed by Halloween from 1978, Friday the 13th from 1980, Prom Night from 1980, Mother's Day from 1980, Graduation Day from 1981, My Bloody Valentine from 1981, <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984, which is another Christmas horror movie, and April Fool's Day from 1986. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, this is – I think you might surprise you with this one. Uh, Gilda Radner was offered the role as Phil- Phyllis Carlson. Uh, she was attached but dropped out one month before filming began because of her commitment to Saturday Night Live. Wow. So, very interesting. Yeah. Um, that's what I got for fun facts for our, our yeah, very wonderful good. Black Christmas. Very good, man. Or to quote Margaret Kidder's character, very Yule-ish. Very Yule-ish. <laughs> so. I think that little shit schnockered. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, well, man, I think we've we both agree that the original Black Christmas it deserves a thumbs up from us. Yes, definitely a thumbs so up. So we should move on to our next one, which yes. is oh, Black Christmas. Yes. <laughs> yes, let's roll that trailer for Black Christmas from 2006. Everyone should be home for Christmas. Are about to discover. Lauren, we're opening up presents. Why don't you open the present we got you? Their house. I got it. Is his home. All is calm. All is bright. Who is in my house tonight? Don't you have lots of toys to deliver to good little boys and girls? You really shouldn't provoke somebody like that. And on December 25th. You're definitely getting punked. All he wants for Christmas is making in a room. Is a new family he can treat like his very own. Uh, give it a shot, shall we? <laughs> yeah, so I can vent my frustration over this movie. <laughs> but if you're venting it... your frustration, why are you taking your pants off? jeez. <laughs> oh, are you that hot? <laughs> yes. <laughs> In this studio? Of course. <laughs> okay, so Black Christmas from 2006, written and directed by Glenn Morgan, with executive producer Bob Clark. Yes, that Bob Clark. Yeah. Um, starring Kate Cassidy, Michelle Trannenberg, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Lacey Chabert, Kristen Cloak, Andrea Martin, yes, that Andrea Martin, <laughs> Kristen Lowe, and Oliver Hudson. So, <clears throat> Black Christmas begins on a snowy winter night on Christmas Eve in the Alpha Kappa Gamma sorority house. Lauren, played by Crystal Lowe, is getting into her pajamas in the next uh, into her pajamas in the next room. Claire Crosby, played by Leela Savesta, is writing a Christmas card to her half sister Leia, played by Kristen Cloak. Suddenly, she hears something from her closet. So she goes over to the closet door and looks inside. She sees nothing but clothes. She goes back to her card and sees that her fountain pen has disappeared. And then all of a sudden, a figure wraps a bag around her head. In the scuffle, the mysterious person stabs the pen into her eye. <clears throat> okay. Welcome to Black Christmas. Welcome to Black Christmas. At a mental ward not far away, Billy Lenz, played by Robert Mann, is, give, is given his Christmas dinner. He's incarcerated in a small cell, rocking back and forth in his rocking chair, his cell all decked out with Christmas lights. Now, the orderly serving food gets startled by a volunteer dressed as Santa that's looking for the children's ward. Security guard Jay Bailey, played by Ron Selmore, 
cracks a couple of jokes to the orderly about Billy trying to escape every year. The orderly and the Santa walk away, leaving the security guard all alone in the hallway. Billy opens up the small window to his cell and sets a a gift-wrapped newspaper on the ledge for the security guard. The security guard opens it to find nothing that interesting except on the newspaper is written, I'll be home for Christmas. So the security guard looks into the cell and to find it empty. Billy's chair rocking back and forth, uh, and he quickly opens the cell to go inside to find a hole in the wall. He takes his flashlight to look inside the hole. Billy comes from under the bed and stabs him in the neck with a candy cane. Billy then leaves his cell and executes the man dressed as Santa. Billy rips off the Santa suit and stuffs the dead guy's body into the Santa bag. And he leaves the institution dumping the bag in a dumpster with the man's hand sticking out. Probably the only good scene in this whole movie. <laughs> and I'm surprised nobody saw that. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to figure out how Billy managed to carry that body because that guy in the Santa suit yeah, looked like he was a little, uh, a, a little, little heavier. A, a little, you know, he had a bowl full of jelly, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now back at the ranch. <laughs> I'm sorry, the sorority house. A couple – Kelly Presley, played by Kate Cassidy, and her boyfriend, Kyle Arthur, played by Oliver Hudson, are chatting in his car outside. She tells him that she's going to spend Christmas with her roommates and that she will make it up to him. He is saddened because this is their first Christmas together. She kisses him farewell and goes inside the house. As she does, her fellow sorority sister, Megan Helms, Jessica Hammond, calls Kyle on his cell phone. Meanwhile, Megan in her room is watching an old homemade porn movie that features her and Kyle. Say what?! <sighs> he's showing his, she's showing, he's showing her his candy cane. Uh, Kyle hangs up the phone and Kelly goes inside to greet everyone, including Melissa Kitt, played by Michelle Tranberg, her best friend, Heather Fitzgerald, played by Mary uh, Elizabeth Winstead, Dana Mathis, Dana Mathis, played by Lacey Cherbert, Laura Hannon, Hammond, and Miss McHenry, played by Andrea Martin, <laughs> the house mother who loves all the girls and accepts their crazy flaws, mostly drinking. <clears throat> <laughs> The sorority house begins to receive strange phone calls as a, winter, as a huge winter storm is approaching the campus and the sorority house. The audience comes to find out that the other sorority houses and fraternities have all left for the holiday break, leaving only Alpha Kappa Gamma. How convenient! <laughs> now, at first, the ladies blow off the phone call as just a prank call. Some get extremely drunk. I'm looking at you, Lauren, Ham- Lauren Hammond, <laughs> played by Crystal Lowe, doing her best impersonation of Barb. Yes. Uh, they also start opening some Christmas presents while Mrs. Mack tells a story about a young boy named Billy and his family that used to live in this very house. Billy was born with a, uh, with a liver disorder that made his skin yellow. Billy's mother did not love her son. She was ashamed of him, in fact, and couldn't stand his father either. Billy's father, however, loved his son very much. One Christmas after uh, she told Billy that the Russians shot down Santa's sleigh and killed him, uh, the father dismissed this news and told Billy to go check his room in his stowaway space in his closet. Billy finds a telescope from his dad. The audience comes to find out that Billy's mother was having an affair with another man. They both gang up on Billy's dad and beat him to death with a plastic bag and a hammer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, then they hid his body under the front porch in a shallow grave. Billy witnesses all this, uh, uh, and his mother locks him in the attic for many years. After a couple of years have passed, Billy's mother and stepfather can't conceive a baby well, basically, basically because they're drunk 24-7, he can't get it up. Um, <laughs> after a drunken night, Billy's mother goes up to the attic and has sex with her son. Yuck! And blammo, nine months later, Billy is not only a father but a big brother to Agnes. The stepfather totally clueless as to what happened because Billy was still locked away in the attic. 
A few more years pass, and Billy can't take it anymore. He goes crazy and nearly kills Agnes, blinding her in one eye. He then kills his stepfather and his mother. He then takes a cookie and carves her up, making making mo- mommy cook Christmas cookies out of her flesh and baking them. Ugh. Back to the present, the sorority house receives a couple more disturbing phone calls. Kyle sneaks into the sorority house to see Kelly and is run out when he see, when the porno video is found on Megan's computer. The audience is, uh, the audience is also introduced to Claire's half-sister, Le- uh, Leia, played by Kristen Cloak, who decides <laughs> to drop by to pick up her sister. So let's discuss the rest of Black Christmas. I'd rather not. because, oh. But uh, we have to, and I, yes. I'm hoping this one won't be a long one. But uh, Okay, so... I remember watching this um, uh, way back when I think it came out on DVD. I think it was either after 2006 or maybe during 2000. I, I can't remember the exact date. But uh, I was shown this movie by none other than Mark L. Rispin, oh, please don't give him credit. <laughs> Mark L. Rispin of uh, sequel this. I, I, I think we watched that because he told me about it and I – I, I'm certain he was not very pleased with this movie I don't movie think so because Black Christmas is one of his favorite movies, the original. Yeah, yeah. So, But he told me about it and said he wanted to show me how inept it was. So, And my only memory of it is I think I dozed off about halfway through the movie. And, and you woke up and you were spooning with one another? Well, <laughs> I, I think that would have been a lot better than actually waking up and watching and, and discovering that the movie is still playing and it hasn't been over yet. So, But I, I remember – so my memory of watching it back then at that time is from bits and pieces because I was dozing off at how how uninteresting it is. Right. But um, so watching it again after you loaning me your uh, DVD, which I have to yes. say, I love how when I opened up the cover, you you bought this from Disc Replay. I did. And you paid approximately the princely sum of $3.61. And it's worth every single penny. It's worth <laughs> every single one. So watching it again – with a more, I guess you can say, clearer frame of mind uh, and actually being able to be awake this time, uh, I honestly feel I didn't miss out on much. <laughs> so, but um, I, I, I noticed that this movie for, for a remake, it, um, it basically takes the concept of the original film, basically the story about the, uh, the mysterious Billy and giving that a backstory and then instead of in- incorporating any kind of psychological or uh, suspenseful elements in this movie, it basically decides to uh, throw those things away and stick to being a generic slasher movie yeah. from beginning, middle, and end. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with generic slasher. I mean, particularly if they're done very well. I mean, if they, but this is one that's not done very well. No, not at all. In fact, it's so badly done that. Um, I have to say it makes me not only appreciate the original a lot more. Yes, I can see that. It it makes me believe the saying that, you know, in the case of remakes, it is true. Perhaps it's the real bad movies that have to be remade. What is it about remaking a good movie like Black Christmas in this day and I guess you can say in this day and age or in the case of the remake of this from 2006? Mm -hmm. What makes them think that they can – reinterpret the story and do something different when there has been nothing reinterpreted here in right. this remake. The, the, the only thing that we, we're given is a much more in-depth backstory to uh, uh, Billy and Agnes. Well, which isn't even interesting. No, it's, it's not. Um, but I feel I should have to give some backstory on to how I purchased this DVD because <laughs> before I start getting hate mail, yes. possible hate mail, so. or questioning my, my, my horror street cred. No, that's uh, okay. We, 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 okay. Consider this after you guys... 
uh, giving me hell for thanks killing three. <laughs> that you know, this is just uh, that sometimes it it just goes uh, in a circle. That's uh, all. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yes, but so way back in two thousand and seven, early part of two thousand and seven, I went back to college to finish, finish my degree. And at the time, I was very Jamaican, like Chris. I was working two jobs, <laughs> one full time, one part time. And I was going to school full time, and I'm at, in the in the study hall, of the library, and I'm and I'm doing my homework, and I'm hearing these two girls over here, these two girls talking, and it's around around Christmas time, maybe New Year's, I don't know, and she's like saying, "Oh man, my boyfriend made me watch this horrible movie, truly disgusting." I'm like, hmm. my ears peaked up. I'm like, like okay. I wonder what that was. And I'm like, okay. So I'm 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 listening as I'm writing, and you know, I'm getting my my presentation together. You should like, you should have turned it. To, it sounds like your boyfriend's a keeper. Yeah. So I'm like. <laughs> And she's like, yeah, yeah, it's this movie called Black Christmas, you know, and it just came out like a, a while ago. We rented it and it was just – it made my skin crawl. I'm like, OK. I, I realized the old Black Christmas. I didn't know there was a remake because, again, we were working seven days a week in school full time. Didn't even give it a second thought. I made a mental note of it. And then last year, again, I haven't seen it at all. Didn't know anything about it. And sometimes that's you know you, you sometimes you uncover a gem that way you know yeah of by course. not no, by not doing any other research on it and just going off somebody's somebody said something and so I pop it in um, you know last year after I bought it and was absolutely horrified and not in a good way. It's, so you, you could say yeah. that instead of uncovering a gem, you basically found a coal in your stocking. Yes, exactly <laughs> uh, from Krampus. Uh, <laughs> so yes, I went off some bad intel that I didn't bother following up on, <laughs> or some you know. So uh, yeah, it was. So I'm like, I have it now. I I, I truth, I thought about selling it back, but I'm like. I might as well keep it just to be a completist because now I've got another Black Christmas coming. I'm going to have all three versions. And yeah. yes, I may not visit that movie for another couple of years, but I'll, I'll have it. It's, yeah. it's not – in fact, it's not the worst remake I've ever seen. The worst remake kind of tends to go to uh, Halloween 2. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean um, I, I, OK. I'll, I'll put it this way. It's not the worst remake I've yeah. seen. It's very – It's certainly one of the worst movies I've seen. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a, it's in, it's in the running. but <laughs> Well, and, and here's the other thing because – you told me to check out the special features. Yes. I didn't get to check out the deleted scenes of the alternate stuff, but yeah. I did get to check out the, I guess you can say the documentary, documentary well. promo type yeah. stuff. And I got to be honest, the, the director, Glenn Morgan, he kind of came off like he was just completely 110 percent not interested in – And a little unsure when, too. You a know? little unsure because he talks about how he was involved in the remake of Willard and how he said that movie didn't do very well because he was told – you know, well, the audiences don't want a movie involving, you know, characters. You know, just just give them, you know, something like 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 a slasher movie type thing. So, and there's a scene where he's basically saying, "So I'm just giving the audience what they want." The problem I have with that is that, yeah, it's true. You got to give the audience what you want, but you also got to show you're kind of caring about the product that you're making, right. or or even if you don't care too much about, it, you have some contempt for it. Hell, even low budget guys like H.G. Lewis had. More contempt for their product, yeah. even if you could say, you know, he wasn't trying to be a great filmmaker. He had more contempt at what he was making than what this guy was doing. Because right. I mean, I'll give Glenn Morgan credit because you know I'm sure you've got some information about the production of this yeah, movie. Yeah, I do. But we'll get there. Yeah. But um, it just sounded like he was like like this was something he really did not want to do. Yeah. And considering that Bob Clark was involved with this movie, I think it, he had best intentions when he first started. Oh Let's yeah, just put it yeah, that way. yeah. I mean, everybody has well, to say everybody has best. Well, intentions. even Clark looked like he was just so jovial over this movie, like. 
you know, and you know, I'm, I was kind of sitting there going to myself, wow, well, when you have the guy responsible for the movie that's right. the basis for your remake that's like has high hopes for it. Right. And, and, then, mean, and you have one of the stars of the actual mo- original movie on board as, as an actor. Yeah, yeah, Andrea and Martin. Yeah. Uh, uh, who – As the house mother or the – yeah, the house mother. Yeah, she's basically playing Mrs. Mack. Yeah, she is. It's, 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 it's a character. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, they could have changed the name. Yeah, I mean, she yeah, yeah. She doesn't have to be Mrs. Mack. I, I mean, know, yeah. Again, this movie is – oh, we're coming up on a 10-year anniversary of this movie. This movie came out Christmas of December of 2006. So mm-hmm. we've got the 40th anniversary of, of a Black Christmas that came out, I think, in the beginning of December, right? Yeah, I believe. 74. Yeah. So we got the, so the 40th anniversary coming are already passed for that and the 10-year anniversary coming up for this one. So, yeah, these are older I, films. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah, but I just I you know, like I I kind of understand what they wanted to do. They wanted to like like cuz they they mentioned they said they were trying to reinterpret the story, but I just uh, felt like I felt uh, like they just took the basic ingredients of of a slasher movie and then well, called the movie Black Christmas, which actually what they should have done is they should have just called this movie something else because yeah. that's what I think would have worked very much in its favor. Yeah. Like maybe like Murder on Sorority Row. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think yeah, there's, or, a, I think yeah, there's yeah. a movie named or, that already. But. Or, uh, you know, or Tis the Season or, you know. or, or, or Any ho- kind of Christmas. Ho- holiday bloodbath. Christmas yeah. bloodbath. Actually. That would have an amazing yeah, title. Yeah, yeah, But instead – and and, and um, the other thing is that I, I understand what they wanted to reinterpret the story. But like in the case of the background for Billy yeah. and, and, the, and, and the, the sister Agnes or the sister slash daughter Agnes, yeah. it's – I, I watched it and I went, you know, and again, looking at it, if you were from a writer's perspective, I said the reason why this doesn't work is because they're just going through the same motions of trying to create that type of, 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 um, I guess you can see that atmosphere of why Billy becomes Billy, and why Agnes becomes Agnes. Basically, it's the same old story we saw before: uh, an abusive parent, okay, the mother, uh, and a kind parent, the, the father. Um, you know, basically, they're. In a loveless marriage, they hate each other. In a loveless marriage, they live in the decrepit-looking house that looks like it's in better days, you know. And then, of course, the mother kills the father. uh, Then marries this other guy with her, the the, uh, yeah, with her person she had an affair. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we don't we never get the mother's real name, so we just call her Billy's mom and Billy's dad. So basically, they're going for the whole domestic abuse kind of thing going on here. And I was sitting there going, you know, why wouldn't What's different about changing the, the schematics and saying, well, how about it's actually a loving family and then all of a sudden the Billy character just becomes infatuated with the idea of being, you know, uh, evil? You know, like so I know that – I love Micah Myers. Yeah, almost. yeah. Like, like, like that's not – I guess you say it's not completely original but looking at it from them saying well, we want to do something different. I, I don't feel like they did something different. Right. I felt like they just went back to the same well. well you, could, you could even say that yeah, there's – I mean, there's there's great nods to the original film, but the 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 characters are almost cookie cutter from the original film. You have um, I forget what's her name, uh, 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 Lauren Hannon's character. I mean, Crystal Lowe's character, Lauren Hannon, basically assuming the role of Barb. Yeah, yeah. She even goes out. Uh, she even gets killed like Barb. Right, right. Well, uh, and and then also uh, you're talking about the one who's basically mostly drinking. Yeah, yeah, drinking. Movie. Yeah, and that's the thing too. Yeah, they 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 basically take the the characters from the original film that. You know, on the one hand, they weren't fantastic characters, but at the same time, they were interesting characters. Right. They were a little more drawn out. They were a little more, like I said, they were a little more uh, interesting to hold your attention. Yeah. And they basically just turned them into cookie cutters right. in this film. The, the only character that I really got to honestly even feel a, uh, 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 an ounce of like um, 
feeling for it would be the uh, the, the stepsister or the half sister. Yeah, Lee played by Kristen Cloak. Yeah, I, I honestly like because they gave they shit. gave her the most backstory uh, almost. Yeah, um, you get very little even on Kelly, um, played by uh, played by Kate Cassidy. Um, even though I, th- I I like her as an actress, I think she's made some. You know, obviously some movies haven't worked out her well. I'll, her I'll tell you one uh, one but, character in this movie now. Now, and here's the thing. You know, we know this is like I think the big flaw behind this movie is because, like I said, they're kind of going for the generic slasher group. Mm-hmm. So basically, we have all these sorority sister characters who we don't really get to know much of. And, and we also get the feeling that you know because of the direction they want to write them, they want to write these characters as being very spiteful towards each other, which right. doesn't really help, in my opinion, of, right. of to, liking to, them. Right, and, and you and you get the, the 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 first kill, much like the very first film or the, the original yeah. film, where uh, Claire, both Claires, yeah. both in their rooms, uh, one, one's packing, one's making, or, you know, wrapping Christmas presents, um, and they get killed right away. They both have a uh, a family member. They're supposed to meet or be picked up by the the father in the original one, and now the stepsister in this mm-hmm, one. Yeah. I mean, they they didn't veer too much into new territory, right? Right. And I think what they did, what they also did, is they demystified the the creepy caller or and, and, yeah, and Billy that's Agnes's the other character. Thing, though, too. It's like they... it's too much. I, I the less you know about something, the more scary well, it is. Well, and also because, like I said, they um, they've changed it where they make these characters. Where I I honestly didn't care anything for most of the characters here, with the exception of like the half sister Lee played by right. Kristen Cloak, she was all right. Yeah. Uh, but basically, they they've 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 basically gave these characters very little to like about, and they try to inject weird moments in these movie in this movie where they, weird moments don't even like go anywhere. They they don't even like stay weird enough to hold your attention. They just make you go back and go. Well, why would they do that? Like in the case of this one character I'm going to mention named Eve Agnew, played by Kathleen Cole. Uh, yeah, exactly. Who's this strange girl with the glasses. With the, the glasses, glasses. Kind of meek. Not not bad looking, but, right. you know, just kind of like very plain Jane regular. Yeah. And she's the strange girl in this movie. And you think something's going to go with that. She literally then, has one minute screen yeah, time. Yeah. She walks she up the just, stairs. She appears, disappears. She's later found dead. And, and what's even more disappointing is seeing – because I was looking on the IMDb at the cast listing for this. Right. This is Kathleen Cole's one and only film, which makes me wonder if she was just somebody that they just got to be in this movie and then just said, OK. A family member of something. Well, or, or, or just a day player. Yeah. But – like I said, they don't even do anything interesting with these characters. They just kind of let them be these very spiteful individuals. And the other thing is that – and it wasn't like something that bothered me, but it was something that I kind of noticed is that the way how they present these girls, they all come off as very um, – like they should be on a photo model. Because like in the original film, you know, the, the, the cast was fairly good looking, but they didn't make them like models in a in a in a, right. in a magazine. I could see that, yeah. Half of the cast and they looked like they were like they like they would be models in the magazine. They, and they, it, they were all the pretty girl next door. There, the there, there, there were no they, plain Janes really, all, except for that one girl yeah, in a minute. Who basically just, you know, like I said, comes and goes. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't bothersome. I mean, I'm not against the idea of having like a, 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 a pretty female character. Right. But they all just felt like they were picked from a catalog right. and put in this movie with very little motivation. And the other thing that I didn't like in this movie was the introduction of the um, – of. Uh, the Kyle, the the Kyle character, Kyle, Kyle, uh, uh, <laughs> Kyle, uh, played by Oliver Hudson, who has to be, who looks like he could be Jake Gyllenhaal's um, 
like uh, brother or cousin, brother or cousin, or body double, yeah. low rent body double, and uh, he gives without question one of the most uninteresting performances yeah. ever. And I can't tell if it's because of his acting or because of the scripts. I will say it's because of the script because I've seen him in Scream Queens on Fox. Okay, he's absolutely hilarious. Oh, he's that. good in that. Okay, yeah, and he yeah. was in a, and he was in another dumb sitcom on um, on CB. I believe it was CBS. And it ran for a few years called Rules of Engagement, where he played a uh, – yeah, okay. again, showing his comic. It was, it's, a, it's a dumb show. It was a dumb show, but it showed his comedic side. And he's a, he's a funny guy. Well, uh, OK. So maybe I'm being yeah, a little harsh. It's just – Yeah. You've I, only seen him in one movie. That's I, not really – I, I know. I'm sorry. I wasn't being – but that's why I yeah. said I wasn't sure, certain if it was yeah. his performance or the no, writing. No. It, it was definitely because the writing. Because in, in, in his motivations are very – just very un, like well, unformed because – You don't get to know a whole, a whole lot about him again <laughs> along with all the other characters. Yeah. Well, and it's because I, I love how when he finds out – when they find out when um, his girlfriend Kelly played by – Katie Cassidy right. finds out that he was sleeping with this other person, right. and the videos on the internet. Right. You know, and then he's like, "Oh, one of my uh, one of my um, employees at work or my coworkers at work that I don't like uploaded it." It was very, very bizarre. Yeah, and then later on, when he ends up telling her, I'm, "I wasn't out dealing, and I wasn't out robbing Seven Eleven, so I didn't yeah. hurt anybody," I'm sitting there going, "This is the worst motivation ever to write for a movie because." Or, you know, yeah. like I, I've seen some done just because for the sake of making the character stupid, but right. but the way how they presented, trying to make it seem like he was make it like like I have an, I have a good reason why right. I did this and it didn't involve hurting right. anybody. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, if you want to be the love him and leave him type, don't be involved in a relationship. Right. And, and the thing is, when I, when, I, when I did my when I did my synopsis, I kind of merged both uh, what Miss Mac was talking about and his character because just for time constraints. Yeah. Um, because he, he has a – because before he gets kicked out of the um, – before um, – because he, he sneaks into the house. Before he gets kicked out, um, he tells a story of, of, yeah. about Billy. Yeah, he tells, the story. he tells the concluding half of the yeah. story, which I got to say, I don't like the narrative shifts in here when they do the the the, 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 uh, the backstory because, you know, they, they tell it at one point and then they stop and then they tell the it, other it's, part. It's, it's very stop. haphazard. It's very it's – very yeah. shaky, you know. Yeah, yeah, and 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 because of them expanding the idea of the Billy character and Agnes character and the Agnes character, it it sort of like drags the story, the behind, I guess you can say, the backstory out a little too much. Right. So, and, and the other part I didn't like in this movie is when, and it, not, it just because it was just so like like. If if it was a regular generic slasher movie, okay, its heart would be in the right place. But here, it didn't feel like it was. Is when we find out when Billy kills his mother and he takes her back and cuts out it, the it, holly cookies you know, and, using the, the Christmas cookie yeah, cutter and, and, and bakes them and makes them and bakes them. I was just I was like, man, this uh, this just like this, it, it, it felt like um, just gory to be gory uh, in some in some aspects. And again, I don't understand. And they never really explain it. And I don't really want them to explain it because that would be more stuff that we don't need to know about. Yeah. But the idea is with, with taking the eyeballs uh, yeah, off, the, off the victims. Yeah. I don't get that. Is it like a see no evil kind of thing? I, I, yeah, or, yeah. I don't – or just some weird character trait. But then – so like I said, we're not going to get too deep into yeah. the plot story because you know, it's, it's basically just, the same plot as it's before. The same, it's the same plot but take away any of the intrigue. Right. Or the, the reasonable. I mean, the acting in this isn't bad, but it's not. Right. It's not intriguing enough to make you say, "Wow, this is a slasher movie." It's trying to be a little more than just a slasher the, movie. It's the, just the a thing, slasher movie. The thing that I did like about this movie, and there's only a few things, only a couple, is the set design of the house, which <laughs> that's really not their anybody's fault, but or you know the director's you know issue. But I like the set design of the house. Uh, um, 
not all the hidden compartments, but just the, the look of it. Yeah, the look of it's um, pretty good. And I want to say that I, um, I had a, I had something in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I lost it. Um, so um, why don't you say stuff, Chris? Oh, no, 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 that's okay. That's good. No, the set design uh, is, is 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 pretty good. I think that's probably the one thing about this yeah. movie that works very well is that you know I mean the production design is very effective. Um, and I think they did they did their best to kind of get back right. into the spirit and the mold of what like the house what the house looks like. And in a sense, they were trying to sort of make it look like it was the same as the house from the first, the original film. Right. They, they they made some alterations in it, but they, they were trying they to did. get but they, they were trying to get the feel and yeah, the look and of the it and the spirit of it. And if and if you take on it's just for a couple of flash frames and it's there and gone. Is you see the leg lamp from yeah, uh, the Christmas yeah, story, yeah, which yeah, I thought yeah, that, yeah. I thought that was kind of a nice uh, subtle nod. I liked. Subtle nods like that, as opposed to the big glaring, you know, you know, hi, look, we're 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 making a movie here, right, right. This is exactly what we're going to show you. Now, the death scenes in this movie, I now now again, what I loved about the original film was that the death sequences were slightly, when I say diverse, I mean they weren't repeating motifs. You know, they like like in the original film, yeah. it's the one character that gets the bag overhead and they suffocate her, yeah. and the. Mrs. Mac character gets that hook thing shoved into her, and then oh no no Miss Mac Miss Mac died of, of a no, falling no, icicle. No, no no I know but I'm talking about the original film. Oh, oh I'm, the sorry, original I'm film. sorry. In the original film, like they or you know Margot Kidder's character gets stabbed by that that the unicorn. unicorn thing, and then of course um, Andrea Martin's character's death sequence is off screen, so yeah. we don't exactly know what kills her here. What I really didn't like about this was that they basically it was almost like if they were like when, like imagine if they were remaking this film but not without the story in mind right. and they were told that there was a scene in the original film where a woman got suffocated with a bag put over her head. That's basically what they do throughout almost this entire movie. Right. You know, the opening sequence in the remake is basically Claire having the bag put over yeah. her head, gets stabbed in the eye. Um because yeah, the original Claire didn't get that, but she did get yeah, the bag yeah, over the yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Megan goes up in the attic, gets the bag placed over her head, and then has her eyeball removed. Uh, another character uh, she, So gets, she – essentially, Megan is taking over from the old Mrs. Max character, the second one dying in the attic. Right, 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 right. But I'm saying like they're just – they're just repeating that that that, that, oh, yeah, that yeah. suffocating bag motif. And then the other death sequences in here are kind of OK. I did – Think that um, I thought uh, Oliver Hudson's character, or Kyle's character's death scene was probably uh, uh, the best. Out well, of all but of them. then it also repeats the motif. Yeah, right. He's putting the bag yeah. over his head. <laughs> right, but he put up a fight though. First. He, did, he put up a fight. Oh, I thought of another thing that I, 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 I was unique. Well, not unique now, but um, giving that sense of isolation with impending storm right, and all the others. Right, and it's not really. G- Perfectly executed uh, because it, fe- it feels like it felt tacked on. But I like the idea of having yeah. a sorority or having a group of people in this a situation where they can't really get out. They can't get out yeah, because they kind of them. like the Krampus issue where they can't. Right, where the storms right. Come Although in, in Krampus it worked a lot better. Because oh, I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Oh, it I know, I know. Yeah. But I'm saying in Krampus it works better because it's more fantasy. Yeah. And it, whereas here it's like they call up the cops and they say it's about two hours. Yeah, until two. Something. Yeah, because there's like a not there's like a big pile up. Right. Well, it's going to take two hours and then of course there's like another area where the storm's just Right, and really campus bad. security can't get there for some reason. Yeah, I, so I mean it was okay. It was a pretty decent um, I, I, it was, I like the idea that it was poorly executed. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's just um, and, then, and again with the uh, the death sequences there are like I said like, like the repeating motifs of the putting the, the plastic bag over the head were a little too much. Um, some of them were okay. I, I did kind of like the, uh, the part where um, uh, uh, Dana, played by Lacey Chabert, is underneath the house. Has to turn the circuit breaker back right. on. She gets stabbed in the head with the yes. with the 
with the uh, garden tool. Right. But most of the death sequence in here, they, they were kind of like on the, well, okay, it is what it is. But yeah. it's like you wished it was better. Yeah. And, and, then, and then, of course, there's the plot holes we could talk about all day. Oh, um, yeah. Well, the well, one – well, why don't you point out well, one? Cause one, of my, one of my biggest pet peeves, and it's when, when, when Lacey's character uh, got killed, is that she, she has to go under – she's having this conversation back and forth between her and um, – uh, the Cloak's, uh, Cloak's character, um, the steps, older stepsister, that they have to go under the house and reset the big ma- master circuit breaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's under the front porch. Now, if you remember in the flashback scene, uh, the step, uh, the, the the mother and the, the and the soon to be step new stepfather buried the, the the Billy's father, you know, in a shallow oh, grave yeah, underneath yeah. underneath the, underneath the front yeah, porch yeah. Right. by the circuit breaker. She goes on the circuit breaker and she's about to reset it. And all of a sudden, you see the skeleton just hanging there before she gets before she gets whacked. Right. I'm like, the the the, the murder took place in the last murder took place or Billy was got captured in 1991. Uh, from the story, the 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 when when was it Miss Martin's character um, she took over as a, as the den mother or the house mother she was in 1993. Right. So they renovated the house obviously extensively. And but you, yet, they nobody checked the circuit breaker. Nobody fixed anything under the house. <laughs> then you got all this, the, the the hidden compartments in the walls. Nobody decided to check this out when they're painting and putting down new carpet and doing whatever the hell they have to do to make the yeah. house. Yeah, actually, you mentioned that too. There was there's the scene where, um, um, I'm trying to think for a second. Her, um, I have it written down. I'm just trying to find it. It's uh, oh yeah, the Lauren Hannon character played by Crystal Lowe, who's basically the Margot Kidder character. Right. So after she gets sick and starts vomiting, and she's vomiting in the toilet, and then right. she decides to take a shower. Oh there's yeah, a, there's a shot where like a peep, like a peeping tom. Yeah, shot, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a peeping tom shot where the killer is like lurking underneath the the the, the floor, crawling underneath the floor, and the floor has these tile, these little mini tile placed all around. And when the killer manages to have a hole underneath it and pop one of the tiles up so he can look through, but then of course the the you know the the, the Lauren character just like throws a towel over that area. Right. So then once when she walks over in the shower, all of a sudden there's another tile that pops up that happens to be conveniently over the spot where he could see. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, <laughs> Why would you do that one first? <laughs> yeah, but I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. How did he get those holes into that? Well, and, and were those originally there when you know they put the tile in, yeah, or be, what? I don't understand. Because apparently, other sorority sisters have money have passed through from ninety three to two thousand and six, yeah. <laughs> and nobody's noticed any of this stuff. And it's not because they 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 uh, they appeased the Billy gods by putting presents under the Christmas yes, tree, um, which I thought was the mo- one of the most ridiculous. Yeah, things. like what's the point of putting? Presents for Billy, if you know, like Billy's not gonna. Yeah. I, I mean, I get what the point of it is, but yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a silly. superstition. It's like silly super campfire superstition yeah, yeah. stuff. It's rather and, silly for this movie. So, but, but um, the other plot point in this movie that that really kind of almost set me off because I was like, I, I was willing to suspend my 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 disbelief. <laughs> To up to a point, you know, I can do it when I'm watching, you know, Dario Argento movies, but that's because Dario Argento manages to to make the situations interesting that's, enough. And, for that's, and that's more, let's face it, his early stuff is more like an artwork, you know, yeah, than yeah. actual, you know. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is, when people say, "Well, Chris, you got to suspend your disbelief," no, I agree. But there's a point where there's so much you can suspend it to the point where when you get to the big finale. And it doesn't quite pan out. You're kind of sitting there going, well, I'm not sure. You know. So the big finale of this is basically <laughs> Billy. Now, 
Billy has escaped the asylum, basically. Uh, yes. But in the meantime, and he's heading back home, just yeah, like Michael Myers. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, these women are being knocked off by somebody else, mm-hmm. and that somebody else turns out to be Agnes, the daughter slash sister of Billy. And I love how they happen to collide together within this story. Yeah. Because it's not only the a very big leap of faith, but it's also the other problem with it is is that. The Billy character originally removed Agnes's eye. Right. And so wouldn't Agnes another have, big sticking point for yeah, me. Yeah. So wouldn't Agnes's character have a, a at least an eye patch? <laughs> well, not just that, but wouldn't she have like some resentment toward Billy doing that to her? Right. I mean, unless it's kind of like a backwards, I don't know, Stockholm syndrome yeah. kind of thing. Like like she's willing to But but even even then, how would they even communicate with one another? Like you said, well, I don't was think it they, through MySpace? I know, <laughs> Are they MySpace buddies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well MySpace back then today, Facebook. Right, but, well yeah, but that, that's I'm right. going a la two thousand six. Uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no. But I mean like so I mean I guess in terms of how they collide together in here, again the leap of faith aspect in the story. But at the same time, the fact that the Billy character removed her one eye and which, by the way, you said there was also a, a continuity issue involving that. Yeah, that because be, because when you when he removed the in the in the one of the flashbacks they're talking about, and we have to assume that all these stories that these people are telling are true about you know between um, Kyle's character and Mrs. Max's character about what's going on. Billy removed her eye and and, and almost killed her. <laughs> but when we first when we first see the adult Agnes played by this ginormous dude he's got yeah bo- he's got both eyes you, you would figure you'd have some sort of eye patch or, or at least something right 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 but, and because agnes in the flashback was told that she went into some sort of foster care system you know and she was and you see the last shot if you see the young agnes and she's sitting there and again young agnes doesn't look like very mannish she looks still like a, a, a very effeminate young yeah, girl they try to do this thing where they made make 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 the agnes character as she's older right now Played by a man to make it look and like she's got mannish look, features, yeah, and the man uh, and this, the uh, man Agnes looks like a ginormous professional wrestler. I mean, it's just yeah. I was thinking uh, to myself, man, it's, it's, like what I'm were they like, trying to I'm go like, for here? <laughs> all right, you guys just finish the movie. <laughs> just yeah, end it. and of course we get the, we get uh, the and I can't wait to talk about the finale. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So we get to the big finale where, of course. Our hero of the movie is going to be um, Kelly Priestley, played by Kate Cassidy, Katie Cassidy, and then, of course, the Lee, played by Kristen Cloak. They both manage to get out, and, of course, they set the place ablaze, and then, of course, they manage to somehow escape this this horrible yeah. tragedy, yeah. and yeah. then they're at the hospital, and then they bring in the bodies, and, of course, somehow the bodies of um, of uh, Agnes, Agnes and, and Billy, Billy have managed to survive the fire. Right. And, I, I, and I swear to God, it looked like their bodies. I mean, even though they managed to survive the fire, I and mean, even if they didn't get burned, they, their bodies didn't even look like they were that dirty. They looked no. like they just there's like, no, took a sh- like almost no soot on them. Yeah, yeah. Like, they looked like they just took a shower. <laughs> I'm like, and so um, they, they, you know, you've got uh, Kristen Cloak's character. You got, uh, or is it Kristen Cloak? I believe it's Kristen Cloak, right? The, yeah, yeah. The Lee character, yeah. her Lee character. Yeah, the, her Lee character, and you got Kelly, and she, and, you're, and you see them in in the, in the hospital room, and she's and Kelly's going to go out for you know getting another like MRI or whatever, yeah. some other thing done before her folks come and pick her up, and then so you were left with Lee in the room, um, you know, after she's opened a present, she's looking at the watch, and then you see Agnes pop up. Out of the ceiling tile, yeah, and and freaking killer, yeah. So okay, even suspending more disbelief, 
okay, one, they're in the morgue. The other ones are in the hospital. The hospital's a big place. It's just not like, like a yeah, two-room hospital. Think, yeah, like the morgue's she, not next she, door. To the, she, the, and she, have to, she would have to climb up through the ventilation systems and then somehow drop it down in the right room to kill the character. <laughs> Makes absolutely no sense well, whatsoever. And I love it too that then after she kills um, uh, Lee, then she goes back to hide up there when they bring um, Kelly was, back in yeah. after she gets the MRI or whatever. And then, of course, um, now we get the big finale where she just – when Agnes attacks, uh, Kelly takes the defibrillator and starts right. it up. Cranks it up. And cranks up and then kills, kills her, her by just – Shocking her. And then Billy arrives and starts you know, chasing her all over the place and they get into a nice little scuffle. And then uh, Kelly manages to throw Billy over the balcony and he lands on, on a, a Christmas, Christmas tree <laughs> that has a sharp ornament on it uh, that I am – that surprise that that sharp ornament was managed to do that much damage to this yeah. poor bastard of a yeah, man. Yeah, because literally he fell like maybe what five feet, yeah. ten feet uh, mm-hmm. from where that where where she uh, allegedly or you know threw him off the. Bow- this death scene feels like it should be in a Steven Seagal movie, right? But I mean, that's got to be one hell of a strong Christmas tree not to move at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I've set up fake Christmas trees. I've seen Christmas fake Christmas trees in hospital lobbies and bank lobbies. You breathe on it wrong, it's going to fall over. <laughs> Um, and he's, he's he's like perfectly and, 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 yeah, balanced, and, and he's laying on it like he like he like he fell out like the hand of rocks a crater like he like he's laying on like a yeah, yeah. fence or something like that. Completely, I'm like this makes absolutely no sense. And he's like gurgling. He's finally dead. And, thankfully, and of course, the, his guts are hanging out. Right. And, and finally, the movie's we, over. And, and thankfully, the movie's over. And, yeah. and we wish that someone would have taken this movie and just just put a rock inside of it and whacked it over our heads. Um, it's 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 yeah. I mean, like like I said, I I want to give the f- director Glenn Morgan benefit of the doubt for trying to do something. But when I just saw that behind the scenes thing, he really looked like he was distant and just yeah. not with it. Well, I mean, and I, and I get it. If yeah. he, I, at that point, I'm sure it was towards the end of filming and he was pissed off because I've got some fun facts I'll talk about. Well, why don't those. you bring those up? Okay. So I'll, I'll bring up that one first because it's we were just talking about that. Um, let's see here. Let me go through my notes here. Uh, Okay, Glenn Morgan and the Weinstein brothers, Harvey and Bob, reportedly often clashed during filming due to his insistence on the film being more gory, which Morgan did not approve of. Then Glenn Morgan goes on to report, uh, Glenn goes on to say he reportedly disowned the film in response to a question on whether or not he was happy with the results. Morgan said, "No way, it's schizophrenic because Bob Weinstein came in and urinated all over it." <laughs> really, there was no time. There were, really, there was a time for torture porn. That was a hot thing. You know what? He goes. I, he goes on. He goes. I, Bob, Rick, or Bob and I became close friends, and you could you could throw on his original movie, and it's great. He goes, I love that movie. I love the Christmas story too. And I learned a lot from Bob. And I had his blessing trying to remake this version. And we were trying to make a version that he didn't get to deal with the background of the killers and stuff like that. When Bob Weinstein came in and saw it, he was like, oh, we need to drag Michelle Tannenberg down the hall by her eyeballs. And I was like, oh, Lord. And I talked to my my agent and my lawyer and Kristen about it. It was humiliating. It was horrible. I tried to – I stayed to try to protect the cast and crew and the friends of mine and ended up taking it on the chin. So uh, apparently he – I think at, when we saw the interviews, that was probably done close yeah, to a few, couple of days before I, wrapping. I, I have to suspect. I wonder what the original, you know, script for this, or what the I, original intent would have been. Because I, 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 I can understand his frustration yeah. that they took it away from him and they reworked it. But I really wonder what it was that in, in his original concept 
of the remake that he wanted to do. I don't. I don't we, we'll ever know because <laughs> we don't. Because I, if he wanted to go the psychological route, I mean, you know, I could kind of see that. But like I said, it's like they just well took the 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 slasher elements and just removed everything else. And I and maybe that really was Bob Weinstein's yeah, response because 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 if you go by what that what he said, and if you go by what when you uh, if you look at the alternate endings for the film, yeah, you really get the sense that. Um, that the first alternate ending was uh, both uh, Katie's character. I mean, K- Katie. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Kelly and uh, Leah. Leah were in the were in the in the hotel room or not hotel room the the hospital room and still having the same conversation about her folks coming to pick her up and you know um, it'll be okay and they open the present. But that was it. They pulled out of the wide shot. They went back. To, they showed a, another shot of the house. And, that was, and, they, it. and that was it because you still got the feeling like in the original film that Billy and Agnes were still alive. Possibly. We don't know. But that was a nice way mm. – a nice, a, a nice way to possibly end it instead of going with the over-the-top gore like um, yeah, you know, or, Glenn or, was talking about. Right, right. And it, uh, but that's me, just, that's, that's me just trying to fit the puzzle pieces together. Yeah, I guess. me too. I mean I, I, like I said, I'd be very curious to see what, what the original intent would have been. But I yeah. – I, I I understand what he's talking about, and I do have to say I, it sounds like something Bob Weinstein <laughs> would probably do if he wanted to cash in on the t- at the time of the torture porn thing and right. utilize the because this was right, right. Ar- right around you know like um, Saw and different other Saw yeah, different yeah. knockoff movies. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, uh, as I said, Glenn Morgan was good friends with Bob Clark, who directed the original Black Christmas in 1974. He received his blessing to direct this film and remained as an executive producer. Clark managed to watch the remake before he passed away. And then he goes on to say somewhere – I have it here that, – um, that actually Bob – even though it was poorly, re- poorly received, Bob Clark wanted to do a sequel to his original. But unfortunately, he passed away before that could yeah. come to fruition. Um, yeah. That's a- oh. The scene in which Billy puts on a Santa suit upon leaving the mental institution is a reference to the character Billy Chapman in the movie Silent Night, Deadly Night from 84. Oh, uh, the, f- this is known. For the, this this uh, film was known for the infamous false advertisement footage in the theatrical trailer and TV spots. Bob Weinstein of the Weinstein Company hired up-and-coming actress Jill Murray, Jillian Murray, to film some of the promotional material. She is a girl who wipes the snow off the frozen pond. Uh, to encounter the girl who, who then breaks th- through the ice, and the girl who falls off a tangled roof, and the Christmas lights. You know, it's yeah. You know, it, again, I, I could see that being an issue, but I don't know if that'll make poor box office pr- performance because well, that of that. Sounds a, like quite a deceptive trailer. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like a bait and switch kind of thing. Uh, well, d- d- does that trailer still out there? I'm I try. You know, I actually I tried to find it so we could put it. Uh, even on our Facebook page, because obviously you can't really you can't see it on our audio yeah. podcast. But no, that trailer apparently doesn't exist at least in the digital media world mm. that I could find online at this time. Yeah, I, I, I would very I would love to see I, that trailer. <laughs> if I can if I can find it on YouTube, I I will definitely post it on our, our official Facebook page because that would piss me off. I mean, um, to see this movie then then realize I mean when you when you watch a movie sometimes you get scenes that didn't make the movie that are in the trailer. Yeah, but that but sounds always, like but it's always it's the same. It's the same characters in the movie that are in the trailer. Well, yeah, that reminds me of the trailer for a, a, an '80s movie called Mortuary, where uh, Mortuary is just you know standard slasher type horror movie. But for the trailer, they shot footage of uh, Hills Have Eyes Hills Have Eyes actor Michael Berryman playing a a, a grave digger who ends up getting sucked into the ground oh. in in a graveyard. 
But it's like that doesn't happen in the movie at all. <laughs> it doesn't. It's just I, I, him. I, I, you know, I think back. I think there's a couple other movies that that, that have done the same thing. Well, I'm trying to think. What was another movie? Oh, I, I, there, I, can't, I can't oh, recall right now. There's a movie. There's a movie called. Um, it was an Italian film called Island of the Fishmen from 1979. <laughs> and um, a production company in America bought the rights to the movie in 1980. And they shot new footage, you know, to to, to make it more Americanized. Right. It was dubbed in English too. And they were going to call them – and they gave it to Roger Corman. And Roger wanted – it was originally going to be called Island of Mutations. And Roger said, no, we're going to call this movie Something Waits in the Dark. And somebody <laughs> said, well – that doesn't make it sounds like a slasher movie title. It doesn't sound like a movie that would reflect this. And he said, "Well, we're going to go with that." The trailer for that stayed surprisingly true to what they were trying to advertise, and it bombed. And then a fellow by the name of Jim Wynorski, who was working at New World Pictures at the time for Rogers, said, "Maybe I can come up with an idea to advertise this. Will you let me do it?" And he said, "Yeah." So Jim came up with the idea of calling the movie "Screamers," and he <laughs> shot and he shot a fake trailer. Featuring a, a female scientist turning a man inside out, and it had the advertising screamers. You're going to see a man turned inside out, and no <laughs> and man was ever turned inside. No <laughs> man was ever turned inside, inside. And they they put the they put it out. Roger did not have time to check out the advertising. He just said, "Put it out, and we'll see." The next day, he calls Jim and said, "What did you put in those ads? Because we played it in some territories, <laughs> and the 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 theater." Audiences rioted. He said, "Where's the guy that turned inside <laughs> out?" So they had to take the scene from the trailer and actually edit it into the print. Oh my god! So I mean, so talk about deceptive advertising. Oh. I mean, if they should have done that with black, the trailer for black, they should have yeah. cut that into the movie. Yeah, they, they could have had a you know, yeah, another house next door or something yeah, like yeah. that, or put that into the, like the opening sequence and then you know. Right. But yeah, oh my god, what a deceptive idea! And, and this is one I, I found interesting. Uh, I'm officially crown. I'm unofficially crowning. Uh, Kate Cassie as uh, the remake remake Scream Queen. Uh, Kate Cassie could be found in another remake called When a Stranger Calls, also released in February of that year of 2006. Uh, she was also uh, part of another remake from 2010 called A Nightmare on Elm Street. So she's been in a lot of these different horror movies that have been yeah. remakes of classics <laughs> and haven't done very well. Uh, I feel sorry for her, but she's going on to bigger and better, better things. So Yes, yes. And I think I just have one more um, – uh, one more piece of one, trivia? Yes, one more piece of trivia um, that uh, we'll remember. Um, the film caused an uproar controversy um, – the film caused an uproar over a, of a controversy from a Christian group because of the studio's decision to release the film on Christmas Day. Several groups in- – <laughs> <laughs> yeah, several groups, including including the Liberty Council and Operation Just Say Merry Christmas. Oh my goodness, called the film offensive, ill-founded, and insensitive. <laughs> L.A. Weekly columnist Nikki Fink also questioned the filmmaker's decision to release the film on Christmas. Dimensions Films defended the defended the time defended the I'm sorry Dimensions Films defended the timing, saying there is a long tradition of releasing horror movies during the holiday season as counter programming to the more regular Yuletide fair. <laughs> uh, historian Michael Gunru of the Horror Review countered Liberty Council's com, uh, complaint, writing, "Such crimes occur." Uh, throughout the year, including Christmas. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> uh, well, I think the crime was unleashing the movie to yeah. the audience. So uh, I, I don't have much else to say. No. I think it's obvious that it's a thumbs down for me. Yeah, I'm sorry, a, man. It, 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 no, no, it's a thumbs down for me too. I knew it was going to be a bad movie. I still... Oh, no. I'm just saying to the audience, in case there's yes. anybody out there that loves the remake. If you love the remake, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, but um, it's just I I didn't really find anything about it that was, yeah. uh, I guess you can say, memorable 
or uh, or Yulish to you, <laughs> maybe ghoulish. Yeah, or ghoulish, yeah. Oh. But um, yeah, that, that's that's all I got to say yeah. about this uh, this uh, turd of a remake. Yes. Uh, well, then I think we can finally put a bow on black on the Black Christmas films. Yes, <laughs> it certainly has been an experience. <laughs> right, uh, Chris. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, no. I uh, I think we've done all we could to uh, talk about these films. Uh, I'm I'm certain everybody is wondering what our next episode is. We're not going to say yet because yeah. we you know we're still working. Working out the case. Right, right. It's like all things or like most of the episodes we work on, it's usually under construction. Yes. So um, we're not going to reveal what it is we're going to talk, what our next episode is going to be. So you're just going to have to sit back and wait. But stay tuned to our Facebook stay page. Stay tuned, yes. But with all, but that aside, we do wish you all a very Fantastic Merry Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. And a holiday Christmas. break. So, and we'll see you back in January for a brand new season. Yep. So see you then. All right. Good night. Where do you think you're going? Nobody's leaving. Nobody's walking out on this fun old-fashioned family Christmas. No, no, we're all in this together. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. We're going to press on, and we're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap danced with Danny fucking K. And when Santa squeezes his fat white ass down that chimney night, he's going to find the jolliest bunch of assholes this side of the nuthouse. You're goofy. Don't piss me off, Art. Clark? It's over. Not according to Santa's watch, it isn't. Now, come on, son. Stay out of this, Dad. Clark, I think it's best if everyone just goes home before things get worse. Worse? How could they get any worse? Take a look around you, Ellen. We're at the threshold of hell. Thanks for listening. Oh, son of a bitch, son of a bitch, son of a bitch, a gun. You thought I was going to say son of a bitch, didn't you?